Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time, the mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters, the most influential wrestling podcast, call somebody. I am your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? That's not my dad! And I'm very happy to be welcomed once again. I don't know why I played That's Not My Dad. Right before I introduce this man, I don't know how many people have accused him of being their father, but here he is, returning to the show, the golden boy, Jerry Gray. It's great to be back, Brian. A pleasure, as always. Any paternity suits throughout the years? Uh, what's that mean? I don't know what that word means. <laughs> like Austin Adams, pharmaceutical. I can't say it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> hey, you know, I want to ask you about something. Before we get there, I want to give a big thanks to Roy Lusher, who's been a great friend of the show throughout the years. He recently sent me some Japanese magazines from 1973 and 1974. Some of you know I have a pretty big and significant collection of Japanese magazines before 1990. I did not have those issues. So a big thank you to Roy. I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, on that, we're going to move on. I want to ask you, Jerry, I don't think we've talked about it. You know, we talked about, we've talked about so much, but we've talked about you in Florida. You weren't a fan of Dory as a booker. We talked about all that. I guess we didn't talk about after that. You were there when Billy Jack was actually in Florida, weren't you? Yeah, I was there. And uh, after I came back from the first time I was in Mid-South, I was back in Florida. I think it was like, yeah, end of summer of 84, I believe it was. Yeah, summer of 84. And Billy Jack was there. And then right when he saw me, for some reason, he wanted me to go to uh, Portland. He booked me there. He just kept telling me I'd do great there. And then next thing I know, I was in Portland, Oregon. Well, hold on. Before we get there, I want to know more about him in Florida because summer of 84, that's right before he left to go to the WWF, which lasted like two weeks. (laughs) And then he left there to go somewhere else. He was back in Oregon. I know when I was there, he was came back. (laughs) I saw him there again too. But um, yeah, he, um, I was only there for like eight weeks. I think it was two months. And then he, he said me right when I got back to Florida, he wanted me to go. He kept uh, tell me to call Don Owens. I didn't know any stories about Don Owens at that time, so that was kind of a trip. When I he told me to call Don Owens, and Don Owens was on the phone telling me sometimes they don't make fifteen dollars out here. I was like, fifteen dollars a billy. I was like, no, nah, don't, don't worry about that. He's just the way he is. But anyway, yeah, he uh, he was over big time in Florida, though. Definitely, Billy was. I mean, he was really over everywhere, big time. Yeah, at least until yeah. you know the end of his first W. Well, I shouldn't say first, his second. WWF run in 80, what, 88. Until that point, he was pretty over everywhere. He yeah. Went. Yeah. Florida, really. But there were a lot of jealousy over down here, too. With, uh, I guess, I don't know if it was Barry Wendell where somebody crushed his hat one time. And he's a tough guy, too. So nobody room? admitted to Yeah. They, uh, you know, that hat he wore and they, he came yeah. back to Russia. It was crushed because they were really jealous of him, Barry. And I think it was Barry Wendell because that was who the top guy was competing with him, you know. So then Billy didn't, wasn't happy with that. I think he said he was going to do something. Blackjack told uh, <laughs> Blackjack told uh, Billy Jack. He said, "Well, he's a man. Don't worry about me." Because Billy was kind of concerned, like his Blackjack going to jump in, you know? Yeah, you know Blackjack's going to sucker punch him. Blackjack sucker punched everyone. I know. Yeah. Yeah, Bob Roop. He, he sucker punched Bob, Bob Roop. Andre that. the Giant, Ole Anderson twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. Everybody. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, he. Uh, he didn't end up doing anything, Barry, but he's lucky because <laughs> I know he did it too. 
He was really jealous of him. But yeah, he set me out to Oregon. And then uh, the weirdest thing was, though, he was the funniest guy. He should have been a comedian. I mean, back in those days, Billy Jack, he didn't do any drugs or anything. Even when we'd be smoking weed or whatever, he'd just sit there in the hotel with us and say, oh, someday when I'm retired and got a few hundred thousand in the bank, I'll maybe sit back and smoke a joint. But not until then, I mean, he'd just tell his jokes, stand up like for two hours in the hotel while we're all partying or whatever. And then when I see him in WWF, I guess it was 87. Was he there in 87? Because he had yeah. there then, because I seen him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I seen him. I seen him there in the dressing room. It was so weird. Oh, I like you know, a year and a half, two years later, he didn't know who I was. I, saw, I thought he was ribbing me because we were together. I mean, in Oregon for almost the whole year there, and he was like, uh, "I said, hey, Jerry Gray," and I, I had a beard, but I mean, I didn't look much different. And then he goes, he looked at me like he said, "I don't know you, brother," and he was serious too. I was like, "What the hell happened to him?" Jesus. I think that's when the airplane, they didn't have to land that airplane once he, something, he was ODN in WWF, didn't that happen once? Was, I'm not sure. Something happened where they, yeah, something happened, I know. He researched that something happened where they had to stop the plane or land and get him to the hospital. Might have been around the same time when he was not knowing who I was, but now he knows me, of course, <laughs> 30 years later. Had you guys heard any of the stories or rumors back then about what he was doing on the side? I mean, obviously he wasn't partying with you guys, but. You know, no. the, the story's always been either he was dealing or he was muscle for the dealers back then when he was clean. Did you guys hear anything about that? Uh, no, no. I, I rode with him a lot, too. I don't think he had time to do that because we were wrestling every day. I mean, I mean, I don't, I never said a word about anything like that. Was he with and I, some of the people he, in Florida? Um, in Florida, he was, yeah, because I remember that's when one of the times he was driving on the side of the road with me and told me to pull over. She was with him, and then he was wanting me to go to Oregon. <laughs> Stop me on the side of the road after the St. Pete show one night. But I was like, what the hell is going on? But he, uh, anyway, he, uh, what did I say right before that? Something about, um, oh, no, no, I never noticed anybody. Him hanging around was just all gym guys, you know, guys from the gym. There was no, like, drug dealers or anything. So I don't know if that's just because he has some stories. No, I know. I mean, I never, that's some crazy stuff he comes up with. You never saw any of that, so, though, either in Portland no, or not, in Florida? No, nowhere. But he might have. I think, you know, he did do it later, I'm sure, the way he's acting now. But, no, he he was definitely nothing like that. He was all into gyms and stuff like that at that time. We had a segment way back on the show, Jerry, with uh, Jason Rudy, and um, it was yeah. all about Buzz Sawyer's training school. And Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, a lot yeah, of people say the same that. thing about Buzz, that at the end, at least, I don't know how far back it would have gone, that's what he was doing. He was muscle for dealers. And that may have been yeah. how he got mixed up, believe- you know, and hot-shotted. Or give it a hot shot, I should say. Yeah, I believe that. Because he was, I mean, Buzz had no fear that I know of. Because even Manny Fernandez, you know, he's a tough guy. And he uh, he tells a story about the one time the some kind of cocaine deal went bad. And I don't know where it was, Miami maybe, when they were young, both of them. Buzz and Manny. And then uh, I guess the Buzz just drove off and didn't pay the guy for all the money he owed him. And then he blew the windshield out of the car they were driving the, the dealer did and, and Manny's freaking out and he said Buzz just did that stupid Jack Nicholson laugh he does you know he laughed about it he didn't even give a shit after your window gets blown out and I mean while it happened he's laughing like that. <laughs> so crazy he was he was the real deal anyway right I mean he was really yeah. the character you saw on TV was at times actually yeah. maybe toned down from the real Buzz Sawyer as opposed yeah. to up. oh yeah yeah he, he definitely was you know, because him and Slater, when Slater was booking Mid-South, you know, they they hung out together all the time. And, I mean, Slater seemed like the, the cool one. I mean, Slater was like, uh, 
kind of trying to calm him down half the time, I think. Trying to calm both down half the time. Yeah, he was, he was definitely out there. <laughs> if I'm in the locker room in Mid-South in 85 when you're there, and I want to party after the show and I'm a heel, I'm not a baby face, I'm a uh-huh. heel. Who am I going to? Who am I saying, hey, where's the party after the show? In 85. Probably me at Leroy's. That's what Skandor Akbar <laughs> used to say. Let's go down to Leroy's motel. What the hell's going down down there? I stayed at the dumpiest motel I could find because we were never there anyway. We were traveling every minute, you know, and it was like 75 bucks a week for the dumpiest motel you could get because I wanted to save money, you know. <laughs> You'd be like, Leroy's motel. Something's <laughs> going on down to the damn place. <laughs> anyway. And then, no, uh, the biggest party thing, God, he had no time to party hardly. He was just on the road every minute. But um, I used to buy weed from Dick Slater in Charlotte, I know. <laughs> was it good? Kind of weird. No, not really. Well, I wouldn't want to tell him that. <laughs> he'd be he'd go well, you to the store and get it. You can it. say it now. Yeah, he'd hand it to me. and It'd be kind of small. I'd be like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, whatever you say. Wait, hold on. When you say you were getting weed from him and it was kind of small, were you getting dime bags from Dick Slater? Uh, well, back in those days, it's like 1983. I don't know what the hell the price was for. I think it was like 25 bucks. Okay. I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't that good, whatever it was. But, um, it was weird though. Cause he wouldn't even say two words. I just drive to his apartment. I think he lived with a rat free or something. And then he wouldn't even say anything really. <laughs> he would just go in there and get it and hand it to me. There was like two words, maybe one word. Okay. This was true. <laughs> it wasn't a real talkative guy. I never did see him talk a whole lot in a mix later. But anyway, well, going back to Billy Jack, yeah. So you were with him in Florida. He was super over. Why did he leave? Do you remember? Yep. Was it the hat incident, or was it something else? No, because I already left before that. He sent me <laughs> right when I got back to Florida. I didn't have no time to even, you know, visit family. Pretty much, he he booked me in Portland right when I got here. So I didn't get to even see what happened. He left after I did. So I have no idea what, you know, why he left or anything. And then what was it like when he when he arrived back up in Portland? Um. Crowds got bigger. I remember that. But he, um, you mean, what was he like or what was? Yeah, what was it like with him? What was the relationship like between him and Don Owen that you saw? Oh, yeah. Well, Don Owen loved him, of course, at that time because he was making some money again. Yeah, he, he was drawing big time. I think he did an angle with Kendo Nagasaki. And then, because uh, there really wasn't much. I told you before, there was really never a booker that you could just say, okay, he's the boss. That's when I was there. I mean. It'd be whoever had Don Owens ear, like Buddy Rose was when he was there. And then he'd always leave all the time because he owed Billy Jack money, I told you. And then uh, <laughs> and then it'd be Rip Oliver. And then when Billy was there, he pretty much did whatever he wanted. And then Bobby Jaggers tried to be the booker, but that's when the crowd got real small. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, but it was like, yeah, never really until I guess Lynn Denton. I wasn't even there then, but they finally made a, you know, the title of the booker, <laughs> the real didn't know who the boss was then. But, um, yeah, Billy was, he just came in and kind of took it over pretty much like Buddy Rose would always do. When he would come back to Portland, he'd do whatever he wanted to do and pop the houses and everything. So, Did you ever meet his dad? You know, he used to yeah, his dad. Was, who, what was he? He was blind. Oh he was in a wheelchair, right? Yeah, and Billy was so funny. His sense of humor. I mean, but, I mean, when I first got there, I'd been there for a little while, and then Billy came back. But and then he, he would, I didn't know anything about his dad until he came back to you know Portland. So he'd bring his dad on Portland on Saturday nights and the the dressing rooms there at the sports arena. You know they uh, we could go to each other's adjoined uh, dressing rooms. The heels and babies were all together. So Billy Jack never smartened his dad up though. So he he hated Rip Oliver because that was who the you know the big feud was always Billy Jack and Rip Oliver. 
he did everything in the world to uh, Billy Jack, you know. <laughs> so his dad hates Rip Oliver. Okay. So Billy bring, wills his dad into the dress room to meet all the good guys that that thinks, right? Because he's blind. So he uh, introduced everybody. Oh, here's Bobby Jaggers. This is a good guy, good guy. This is, here's Ricky Vaughn, you know, Lance Vaughn. Here's uh, whoever, Steve Simpson. And then he goes, okay, here comes Rip Oliver into our dressing room. And that's who his dad hates. So he impersonates me. And Billy said, here's Jerry Gray. He's a really good guy. And I sent here from, sent him here from uh, Florida. So Billy Jack sitting there, his dad sitting there shaking hands with the, the guy he hates more than anyone. And <laughs> that's the rip that uh, Billy pulled on his own dad. Yeah, what the hell is <laughs> up with that? Billy's game. doing it to his own dad. I know. He, just, he didn't give a shit. It was like everybody was dying laughing because Rip was standing there going, hey, how you doing? Changing his voice, you know? And his dad was like, yeah, you don't know how you doing. And they're sitting there talking about everything. And then Billy's just dying laughing. That's the kind of sense of humor he had, though. It was just like <laughs> crazy. Wow. The comedic I mean, stylings of Billy Jack Haynes. Oh, my God. Some of the jokes he would tell. I can't even remember. It was, he was good, though. I mean, like a stand-up comic he should have been. Like at that time. Did he have, like, dirty happened. jokes or just funny jokes? Just yeah. Just the way he told them, too. I mean, you know, it wasn't even that great, probably, but the way he would tell it. would be like, oh, my God. It was hilarious. Yeah, he was a really funny guy. Like Bobby Heenan, but even better, I think. I mean, he was. Hey, I remember seeing photos of Billy in Florida uh, where he's uh-huh. posing and they have a couple girls in bikinis and one of them is Nancy Sullivan before she was in yeah. business, I think, when she was just a fan. Did you yeah, remember her from, from shows? Orlando. Do you remember her when she first started coming around? She was always in the ringside with, I forget who went with her, but she was from Orlando here where I'm from. Um, but I never met her, but I, I remember all the guys always talking about the good looking woman that lived i mean <laughs> that sat in the ringside for i guess a lot of the years i think she went with her she was married i know but i don't know who she went with her sister or her mom or something yeah, it was family it was, but uh, no. it was some family members. yeah yeah somebody. yeah yeah but i did meet her later when she was with uh kevin and everything so <laughs> she was good as the fallen girl. angel i actually kind of feel like yeah she could have done oh, yeah. so much more she was so into her role that anything you see with her, yeah, that was you good. believe that she's really insane. You really believe that she's psychotic. Yeah, that was pretty good. I mean, when they did that, yeah, that's when he first got with her. And then uh, I remember I told you before I made Sullivan's first uh, spike thing because I had outfit yeah. I wore with the Destroyer with all that stuff on me. Yeah. So anyway, he said, no, can I wear your outfit? And I was like, man, that's my outfit. He goes, just make me some, you know, you know make me some of this stuff. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, she was uh, good at that gimmick. I like that too, better. Before, like the outfits too for back in those days that was pretty i mean you know pretty risky for oh, yeah. that uh early 80s Jesus. you know i wanted to ask you jerry about you brought up buddy rose owing money to billy jack and all the different locker rooms you were in were there loan sharks who were the locker room loan sharks if you need to borrow money who would you go to <laughs> um shit nobody really um maybe billy jack for buddy rose buddy rose could do that he'd borrow mine from me too though but um I know how he did it too, because he would borrow first a little bit, you know, like a small amount, like forty bucks or something, thirty bucks, and then he'd pay it back to show you, you know, that he, he pays you right back, and then he comes for the big money after you trust him, you know. But I never fell for that part. <laughs> he did it for me to me for like about a month every every week. He'd want more fifty bucks, whatever, forty bucks, and then he'd give it right back. I was like, yeah, he, he was Billy Jack, ten grand there, no way he's gonna pay me back thirty bucks. And then I figured it out when he started doing it more each time. But no, uh, Skandar Akbar used to carry the biggest roll of, uh, I don't know if it was $100 bills or whatever it was, and pull it out and count it in the dressing room all the time. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Really? Why? 
I don't I think just to impress the you know, the younger guys maybe. He was funny as but he uh I know he wasn't he was pretty tight with his money, so there was no way. It was just the show, you know, people it probably was a bunch of ones who knows underneath the hundred dollar bill or whatever, but I don't think he's gonna carry that around with all the heat he has, Jesus. Well tell me about Akbar. You say he's a funny guy, tell me about him. Just the stuff he would say, like like I told you as always, that that motel I stayed at, the biggest dump there was, it was like a I mean, a real Cajun in Alexandria, Louisiana, where Cornette talks about that town we lived in, remember? But Alexandria, how horrible it was. And then uh, I lived in front of Leroy's Bar, it was called. Uh, it was like the worst Cajun. You wouldn't even believe. Last time I drove by there to look at it, I was driving through Louisiana. It, was, it turned into a storage shed. That's how small the rooms were. It was a storage unit. <laughs> <laughs> the rooms. <laughs> but it ended up, a lot of guys lived there after they found out how cheap it was because we were never there. We were on the road every minute. You just come in there and put your clothes there or whatever and then yeah i end up like a lot of guys lived there because i started it and then it was like the bomb almost at the end um pat rose lived there carl styles bunch carl of those styles. guys sean michael <laughs> yeah he lived there he lived there one eyed carl style he used to take that glass eye out crazy he scared the hell out of all the rats he couldn't get no rats when he was around <laughs> he would do that to the to the women at the shows no no, no, he didn't have to do it. They were already scared of him just the way he talked and acted. <laughs> I tell him, don't even talk, man. Don't even open your mouth. Just don't talk. <laughs> Who but could anyway. never get girls? Yeah. Is there anyone notorious for oh. inability to get women? God, they must have been really bad if they couldn't back in those days. Um, <laughs> let me think. Women. I think anybody that wanted them, even no matter what, just because they were a wrestler, you know, pretty much. Um, well, they might have been scared of some, you know, some of those guys, the way they looked like, uh, what you might call Like a Joe Duke and a woman? I'm sure he could. Because he was nice outside the ring, you know. That's true. He was nice when he would talk, you know, the fans and stuff. And then, uh, I'm trying to think, the Sheik, but I heard he had women too, though, so I don't know the way he looked. Oh, Jesus. Um, whoever the scariest looking. But he's a Sheik. I don't know. He looks nuts and he, and he yeah. stabs people with a fork and he throws fire, but. He's a Middle Eastern sheik, so you would think he has all this oil money. So why wouldn't all these women yeah. have the sheik? Ox Baker had women I know when I was a little kid at the Akron, Ohio Armory. <laughs> really? <laughs> he'd, sit there talking to, he'd be sitting there talking to the rest. He'd come in the audience and sit there with him. I'd be like, what the hell? I was scared to death of him at first. <laughs> and then he was a big baby, though. I didn't realize. Yeah, he had a lot of women there, good looking, too. <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask you earlier, you know, we were talking about a little bit yeah. about Louisiana. Did you get to spend much uh-huh. time around Ernie Ladd? Mm, no, because he, he was my first match ever, though. He, he just got kind of mad at me at that first match in Atlanta, TBS. <laughs> I was kind of scared of him because I'd seen him when I was a little kid, you know. And I was like, my first match has to be, I'm at like eight, barely 18 years old. I'm like, oh my God, it has to be against one of the tallest guys on wrestling. <laughs> Jeez. What happened? And he got mad. But, well, it was me and uh, some guy against uh, Mike Sharp and Ernie Ladd. They came from Mid South, I guess. I think he might have been the booker in Mid South then, too. It was like 81. I don't know if he's a booker or not, but he came from Mid-South, I know. Uh, they had a real big show on TBS that day. So um, uh, what happened was uh, he, uh, I mean, I was flipping out because it was my first match ever, right? Just barely turned 18. I think I just turned 18. So and he, your uh, first match ever was on TBS? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just went into like, uh, everything was like slow motion when, Right when I got on, you know, into the ring, I started forgetting everything. I was like, "Oh my god!" And then, uh, do you have one of those really, moments, though, like in the Karate Kid, Danielson? You know, he'll yeah. hear Mr. Miyagi or you know Luke Skywalker or oh, no. Yoda. Did you hear Louis Tillet or anything in your head? <laughs> no, no, because he he only trained us for like uh, what was it, 
seven weeks or some shit too because it was like a big scam like yeah six month training thing and then all of a sudden after he got the money i was like yeah you're ready to go I was like, what the, i'm ready already geez. seven weeks or nothing two days a week no only one day a week training too i think it was not much i didn't know anything he didn't even smarten me up really honestly because back in those days you know he was like the eddie graham school louis he made us really pretty much think it was still he didn't even say like when i went that morning like oh you're gonna have a finish because i was asking like what happened how do i know <laughs> what happens he goes oh you got a lot to learn <laughs> what the hell <laughs> i didn't even know really if it was going to be real i figured it wasn't but he trained us stiff as hell too so i started wondering geez every time i'd ask louie how to do a move he dropped me on my head for real on the power driver i mean i quit asking how to do a move because it was like everything was like completely all the way full forward so well, tell me about this first match Okay, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I didn't even know what the hell was going on. So then I was trained so stiff, like amateur shit we were doing. So uh, first thing, Ernie Lab pokes me in the eyes, and he comes like three inches from my face. He just hit me in the forehead barely. So I'm like, what the fuck? I was used to real stiff shit. You know, and I didn't sell it for a second. It took me, and then I delayed like, and then you can't really tell, though. I seen the tape. And then, and then the worst part, though, was at the end, I was just like, I didn't know where the hell I was even. I was so nervous. And then he did the leg drop on me, his finish, you know, the finish. So he, uh, the referee counts. I guess I just stood up and I didn't even sell it, you know, <laughs> 300 pounds, six foot nine. I just, I started to stand up. You can even see it on the tape. I think it's on YouTube. But uh, you can see I'm getting ready to stand up. And he leans over to me and says, stay the hell down. <laughs> so I just kind of, so I just kind of thought like I'm still hurt and laid the back down kind of, it's not too obvious, but he came out of the dressing room afterwards, but he was mad at because I wouldn't fight back. He wasn't mad about me take, not taking the finish, not selling the finish. He was mad because I didn't fight throw one punch. He said, and I was like, Jesus, I thought I was not supposed to. Really. He was mad as hell. Freaked me out, and then Mike Sharp came over there. He was a nice guy. He was like, "It's okay, if that's your first match. Don't worry about him." I was like, oh, "What the hell? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he did. I stayed away from him after that." But then he was nice to me. I seen him one time in Louisiana. I don't know where to, he wasn't even working. It was just some town we went to, and he was at the show, I think. But I he he didn't even remember that. I think, huh? but yeah, that was the only thing I had with Ernie. Left. I heard some of the stuff he did the the young guys make them drive him around or anything. Make the young guy drive him. And, He'd play Pac-Man all day or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I heard. <laughs> the guy'd be sitting in the car for three hours while Ernie Lance playing Pac-Man or something. Well, Jerry, from there, we're going to move on with the show. We have a really exciting show with a lot of really cool things. But before we do, uh, let's spend a few minutes here as we wrap things up talking about what's going on with you. Obviously, we all know you've been battling stage four cancer. It's been getting worse and worse and harder and harder. A lot of us who communicate with you know there are, I was about to say there are difficult days. There are no easy days. The days have been getting more and more difficult. You're having a rough time. Tell the listeners a little bit about what's going on and how they could help you out. Um, yeah, I go to the doctor tomorrow because I have some new new stuff going on. I can't really get graphic into it because it's like something to do with the colon cancer. But it's like, uh, believe me, it's like uh, the most agonizing pain I've ever had. And I've had so many different surgeries. They don't even compare to what been going on lately the pain i've been having no matter what i eat pretty much anything i can't hardly eat anything without this pain i'm getting so I, like i said i go to the doctor and then main thing is i'm just struggling financially so bad because i have no other money coming in it's not about the medical stuff because i have some kind of thing they gave me otherwise the, the doctor when he did the liver resection 
he had to um, tell the whoever it was the insurance that if they don't, it's a matter of life and death that they didn't at least give me that for you know for surgeries and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's not not that kind of you know it's not the insurance part. It's just surviving everything else, you know, rent and <laughs> eating and stuff. Like that. That's what I'm doing with the money part. But um, I can't actually go out and run shows. I tried that; almost killed me last time I tried to do that. Not too long ago. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know what this new thing is because I never had these symptoms before with colon cancer. So I don't know what other kind of thing it could be though. With the like I said, I can't go into graphical. I told you a little bit off air. Yeah, so let's not let's not go too graphic having. here on air. No, no. <laughs> let's not do that. But it just yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I have no idea what. Uh, what would cause my symptoms when I'm having right now, but it's been about this last month or so. It's horrible. Well, Jerry, I know that the listeners can go to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy, and that is a way that they can send money directly to you. It goes directly to you. No one else touches the money. And like you said, it goes directly to food. It goes directly to bills. Anything that is going on for you right now, this money is used to help you. So many listeners have helped. And anything you want to say to them before we wrap things up? I just want to say that they saved my life, actually. All the listeners, all the people out there, not just, I mean, whoever donated to me. I mean, no matter what the amount was, they've the ones that's kept me going for this last year. I've been on your show and everything. So I want to thank you and all of them from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate it because, like I said, that's what's kept me going. Well, I, I hate to disappoint you, but the show's about to take a big downturn right here, Jerry. We're about to go to Pandemonium <laughs> Theater. We're about to somehow take this oh, lower than we are right now. <laughs> you want to talk graphic. Okay. We're about to go to Pandemonium okay. Theater. Once again, everyone, though, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Jerry, once again, was great on the show. If you've enjoyed his many, many segments and his amazing stories, consider whatever you can donate, whether it's a dollar, $5, $10, or $10 million, whatever it is, tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy. Help Jerry out. See what you could do there. But from that, let's now go to Pandemonium Theater. We are back on the Super Podcast with another edition of Pandemonium Theater. You remember what this is. We go scene by scene through the script of Craig A. Williams' Pandemonium Inc., the biopic of Vince McMahon Jr., or as some may see it, the bullshit biopic of Vince McMahon Jr., We have the script, and we're going through it, and we have a terrific cast today, a terrific crew of Pandemonium players right here on the Super Podcast, and let me introduce them before we get going. Returning as our narrator, and also returning as the role of Gorilla Monsoon, is the very, very popular, I must say, I get a lot of feedback, Lou Kippelman. Lou, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brian. I'm just a fanboy with a dream. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a good way to look at it. Also returning this time to play both the announcer and Vince McMahon Sr. is none other than the very popular Howard Baum. Howard, welcome back to the show. How, how, how? Oh, well, there's a, a new variation on your introduction <laughs> that you do each time here. And making a debut as one of our Pandemonium players this week. He will be playing two roles, including the role of the restaurant owner and Vince McMahon Jr.'s supervisor. It's none other than the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, I'm so sorry to ask you to be a part of this. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I get get the opportunity to throw in a couple of voices, so I'll I'll do my best, gentlemen. Well, well, that's kind of what we say. We say we're going to stay true to the script, but everyone has the capability and the room 
to do whatever you want with the voices. That's really what, I mean, Lou is the narrator kind of has to stay pretty uh, straightforward. That's, you know, Walt Disney is the uncle of America. That's, that's to be right down the middle, but everything else we can have fun with. Uh, I, I should also add, I will be playing Vince McMahon Jr. Once again, as well as Linda McMahon. Uh, I know everyone loved the Linda McMahon voice last week. It is not my preference to do both voices, especially in scenes where they're going back and forth. So I may try to find someone to play either Vince or Linda in future episodes. Hey, we may have a floating thing where, you know, someone can't do it. Someone jumps in and fills in. You never know. But uh, once again, I'll be playing Vince and Linda here on the show. And I think without uh, any further ado, we'll get going. We'll talk a little bit on the other side. So if everyone has their script, please open up to page seven. And with that, I will send it to Lou Kippelman. Cut to Interior Maryland Restaurant Day. McMahon pitches a paper cup to a restaurant owner. Despite the salesman's grin, McMahon's dying inside. The difference between a Maryland Cup Corp cup and the cup you're using is the plastic coating. Asen? We, we cook our cups at an extremely high temperature to create the most durable cup on the market today. Son. When given the choice between a Maryland Cup Corp Cup and the brand. Son. We're talking about a cup. My customers put some shit in it. They drink the shit, toss the cup. I describe it as a very brief consumer relationship. Much shorter than this sales pitch. I understand. I'll get out of your hair. I just have two questions for you. Do you like wrestling? Like the Olympics? Professional wrestling, not Greco-Roman two guys rolling around on the ground shit. I'm talking about world-class athletes performing mind-bending maneuvers. Yeah, but, but it's all fake, right? Here, fighting his way off the ropes is where McMahon will always come alive. The most fundamental code of pro wrestling is called kayfabe. Maybe it's real, maybe it isn't. Who knows, and who cares? Newman and Redford aren't actually train-robbing cowboys in the Old West. But you still bought a ticket to see Butch and Sundance, right? I guess. McMahon holds out tickets. These are free. Next Tuesday in the auditorium at Silver Springs High School, Killer Kowalski versus Bruno San Martino in a Texas death match. It's the fight of the year. Pretty sure Frazier and Ali would disagree, but the wife's been on me about spending time with my idiot son. Take your boy. On me! Maybe he'll surprise you. The restaurant owner accepts the tickets. Haircut would be a start. What was your other question? How many Maryland Cup Corp Cups should I put you down for? Cut to Exterior Maryland Cup Corp. Afternoon. McMahon stands in front of a bustling warehouse as a Corvette screeches to a stop in front of him. His supervisor... An oil slick with limbs sidles over. We had a call. Michaels? That's what we call a brick wall. Been trying to land him as long as I've been there. McMahon hands him the order form. Nicely done, new guy. McMahon makes a jerking off motion with his hand. Look, Ma, king of the cups. Last week's commission check, your highness. McMahon looks the check over. Where's the rest of it? 30-day probationary period. Gotta kick a piece up to me while I show you the ropes. The supervisor smirks, walks away. Cut to 
Interior, National Arena, Office, Afternoon. Senior sits with Gorilla Monsoon, suit, dark glasses. When not in character, he's Gino Morella, consigliere to Senior's godfather. He's built his life around wrestling and is not only a performer, but also curator of its legacy. Senior speaks into a phone. The fuck you, Ben? Intercut with Interior, Maryland Cup Corp, continuous. McMahon stands in a hallway on a payphone. Selling cups. I've got mounts to feed. I need you, but if you're going to be late again, don't bother. Click. Senior looks at Gorilla Monsoon. You sure about this? Tell me my other options again. Cut to exterior Maryland Cup Corp afternoon. McMahon sits behind the wheel of his Buick, trying to get the fucker to turn over. No dice. Fuck! 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 Come on! He tries again, but it's not happening. He pounds the steering wheel, then sits back. Not defeated, but plotting. He scans the parking lot, then zeroes in on his supervisor's vet. Cut to exterior Washington, D.C. afternoon. McMahon tears through the streets of D.C., weaving in and out of traffic, driving on the wrong side of the road, kicking the car's ass until he fishtails it into the lot outside the National Arena. Cut to interior National Arena, Washington, D.C., afternoon. McMahon keeps pace with his dad as they make their way through the bowels of the arena. WWOR in New York needs to fill in an hour slot on Tuesdays. Channel 9? That locks in the entire Northeast. I'd order up some pricey oriental girls and enough amphetamines to keep us going for a week, but now I gotta pay my announcer a national rate. Tell him to eat a dick. Would that I could, but it's a union thing. Even if I fire him, whoever I replace him with, I gotta double what I'm paying this cocksucker. They arrive ringside, where the announcer sets up his table. Did we come to an agreement? Yeah, we all agree you're a talentless hack and you should get out of my fucking building before something of yours gets busted. What? I'm the voice of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Senior nods to Gorilla Monsoon, who closes in on him. As Senior pulls McMahon away. What? Hey, Gino, come on, don't do this. You got a show tonight. Who are you going to replace him with? You. Union rules don't apply to family. You're live in an hour. As Senior walks away, we hold on McMahon. Nervous? Please. I gotta get a suit. Cut to interior McMahon's apartment, night. Linda is in the kitchen with her parents and the baby, Shane, in a high chair. She picks up the ringing phone. Turn on the TV! Where are you? My parents came up. I made barbecue. Just, I gotta go. Turn on the TV. Linda crosses to a tiny TV and turns it on as a cheesy WWWF graphic appears over a pastiche of wrestling action shots. And then there's... Vince! In a lime green suit, doing his best Howard Cosell impersonation. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation's main event. Mom! Dad! Get in here! And bring Shane! 
They do. Look, baby! Daddy's on TV! And with that, we will close out this uh, horrid performance of Pandemonium Theater here. Uh, once again, uh, at the beginning and the end of this, I want to apologize to Ron Fuller for having to be a part of this shenanigans here this week on the Super Podcast. Ron, are you still there? Have you, have you hung up? Have you walked away yet? Oh, I'm still here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on all this? Oh, I think it's a... Uh, I'd like to know who wrote this script. I think, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure exactly where the script got uh, got its origin, but uh, pretty interesting the way we you're laying it out here. Ron, what went into your performance today as restaurant owner? Uh, I was trying to do a little bit of Ron Wright and that, you know, some of that no hillbilly redneck stuff, you know. Probably didn't get close to where I really wanted to be. It was a mild I, Ron Wright, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I kind of, I kind of toned him up a little bit. And then, of course, you had to immediately change roles and play supervisor. What went into that? Well, I was trying to do an Aussie, but uh, I believe that Aussie accent escaped me before I ever got to it. <laughs> <laughs> it I didn't realize that was an Australian accent. This way, usually you're pretty strong with it. No, I. I usually do a pretty good Aussie accent, you know, but uh, I couldn't find my character. Ron, did you ever meet Vince McMahon Sr.? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I worked in uh, Madison Square Garden for him in uh, November of 73. Yeah. Did he sound or talk anything like this? <laughs> well, not exactly. Actually, I met Vince on a lot of occasions. He used to come to the National Wrestling Alliance meetings. So when I became a promoter and, and was part of the NWA, I saw him a lot. But I started going to those NWA meetings earlier than by promotion because of my dad's relationship, and he was part of the NWA. So I saw Vince uh, on many occasions, yeah, especially in uh, Vegas in August. But nothing like this? Nothing where he was just... No, no, not, not, not really like this, no. Okay, well, and Howard, I, I got to go to you once again. I love your announcer, although I think he may have been uh, killed off the uh, program this week. It's a shame. It's a shame. It really is one of your best characters, <laughs> I have to say. It's become <laughs> one of my favorites. But uh, once oh, again, I know. What, what went into your Vince McMahon Sr. this week? Well, you know, I strive for, in the alpha male position, to be a Robert Mitchum. But uh, if I was to do a Robert Mitchum a la Max Cady from Cape Fear, it would sound like one of the Fuller brothers. So I had to back off on the Southern inflection. And from there, you're just left with male alpha domination. That's what that was? Well, I figured, like, you know, what Vince was to become, I figured that had to come from senior. So just the angry, gruff alpha male i don't think that came uh, from but on my senior best, I, see i don't think that came from senior yeah who knows with well you can play it however you want anyway you this know. is a whole bullshit fantasy world that we're reading here in this script so. but i i will say that it, after 55 <laughs> years it's nice to have been here for ron fuller's last um for the destruction of ron fuller's yeah, career ron fuller's I'm last glad podcast i'm glad i was yeah. i'm glad i was hey, for that. <laughs> oh, well lou um how does it feel to yeah. uh, once again be a part of Pandemonium Theater and uh, be the person we will clearly blame for killing Ron Fuller's podcast career? <laughs> First of all, I intend to uh, uh, triple my Patreon payment for the next month. <laughs> <laughs> That'll help. <laughs> okay. Very good. Um, yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a pleasant surprise to be in such a steam company. And uh, I hope I led the story in a reasonable enough fashion. 
With that, we'll move on with the Super Podcast. I don't know what segment is next, so let's go to that right now. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast someone who was on the show a long while back during the Dennis of the Week segment, an old friend of mine from the Dennis Carluzzo days, manager Al Getz. Al, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. I, I think I delivered probably the tamest Dennis of the week. <laughs> I know. I was all excited. You know, all he did was lock himself in a restaurant for an hour to avoid paying the boys. That's probably like the most normal thing he's ever done. <laughs> it wasn't the tamest. There were a few others that were a little tamer. But you're not on today to talk about your managing career or Dennis or any of these other things. It's something completely different, and it's something that I'm very intrigued by. It's wrestling research, and it's your way of looking at wrestling research, your way of trying to find a way to analyze it or quantify it statistically while also looking at what is happening overall. And I know that's a lot of words put together real quick, and it may not make much sense to anyone. So I want you to explain what you're doing. You have a website now called chartingtheterritories.com. What are you doing on there? Well, I have had two passions in my life, and that was uh, professional wrestling and statistics. And with wrestling, there really aren't statistics. Obviously, I mean, there's win-loss records, but those don't mean anything. Although, interestingly enough, if you look at them over a long period of time, the top guys do have the best win-loss records. But to take an example, if Bruno Sammartino beats Stan Hansen by countout, or if he loses to him by DQ, those are the same thing in the eyes of the booker. Those were plot devices to get to the rematch. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, for a while I was thinking, well, what, you know, what is there that can sort of quantify a wrestler's worth or position? And, and I got the idea of looking at their spot on the card. Obviously, the guys in the main events are there for a reason. The guys in the opening matches are there for a reason, too. They're there to set the table. And so over time, over the years, I sort of, looked at all this. I'm one of those guys. I've been to the library. I've, you know, looked through microfilm. I've made copies of it. I've kept track of, of the wrestlers comings and goings, but I came up with the idea of trying to come up with one number that quantifies for a given period of time, a wrestler's position on the card relative to the rest of the wrestlers in that territory. And I came up with a statistic and I cleverly named it a wrestler's statistical position over time so that the acronym is SPOT. So for a given period of time, and just like uh, most you know, sports statistics like batting average, it can be done over a short period of time, over a long period of time, over the course of a career. But you, you look at all the cards they were booked on, or, and you rank the matches on the card by what I call the order of perceived importance which is almost always the order that they're listed in the newspaper ad or on the program. Obviously, we know WWF was different in the way they stacked their cards, but the newspaper ads generally listed, you know, Bruno's match first and, and, and then in descending order of importance. And so you, over a period of time, you take a wrestler's average, you know, spot on the card and you come up with their spot. And it's a number between zero and one. And if a wrestler has a one, that means they were always in the main event on every card they were booked. Have you run into any ones yet? I mean, I've been I've been actually looking at your uh, Amarillo in Kansas City. I know uh, Central States, I should say. Yeah, That's I what's have. What's up right now? Have you run into anyone yet who has a one? Yeah, I have not. I and I have run Florida during Peak Dusty, and he didn't get a one. Um, that's because Florida also had a weird habit of the main events being lights out matches between. 
guys that were feuding at the time that weren't always necessarily the main event. And, and, and those were billed above, you know, world title defenses sometimes. Um, oh, so that's, I, that's right there. A very interesting example I hadn't even thought of. If you have the NWA champion coming into your territory, but you have a lights out match after it, and it's, I, I would assume if it's lights out match, it's a main event caliber match for that territory. Cause usually they don't do that for mid card or below. So how do you judge what is truly the main event that night? Does the NWA champion automatically get? I, I, I currently don't do it that way. I could be argued otherwise, but, but generally I need to really convince myself that right now I'm, I'm, you know, this is just a statistic I made up and I'm the one, you know, sequencing things. <laughs> I, I really need to convince myself to flip the order of matches. I, there's one in particular I saw in, I think it was 1981 in Florida where the lights out match was Tommy Gilbert versus Jim Kent. Okay. And no, that, that's a different and example. No offense to either of them, <laughs> but you know, and whatever they were billed above, I don't know if it was a world title match or if it was just, you know, Dusty or, or you know, whoever was the big feud at the time. You know, that is a hard time. But in some territories, in a situation like that, they, like let's say for Amarillo, Dory Funk Sr. in a Texas death match versus Jack Kane, who was a manager slash prelim wrestler. That was billed as being the last match on the card, but on the ad, it was placed lower. Oh, so that's very interesting right there. So you're analyzing also, you mentioned it earlier, obviously, how uh, Bruno San Martino, for instance, is placed on the ad in the newspaper. But are you also looking at whatever else is available in terms of result sheets from that period of time or old programs, etc.? If I have access to the ad and the program and the results, absolutely. Um, generally speaking, uh, it's just the ad and the results or just the program. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's an art, not a science in cases. Because think about this example. What if there's a battle royal that just features everyone on the card? That shouldn't really count as a match. But what if there's a battle royal listed as the main event featuring Andre or Haystack and they're not wrestling in another match on the card? it's clear that the intent is that match is a draw and Andre being advertised for the battle Royal is done to, you know, that that's a draw. That's, you know, that's meant to get people to come to the show. So, you know, there's, and when guys, when Lawler and peak Lawler in Memphis, when he was wrestling twice per night in Memphis, how do you handle that? How do you handle some of the smaller territories that uh, if there's a tag team main event, the opening match might be, two of those guys from the main event in sort of a prelim match or a captain's match. So it's not as simple as just assigning numbers to everything. You really have to look at the cards and figure out what the intent is. Right, because also what happens if someone is injured or someone no-shows? Well, I, I, I always do it based on what's advertised. The idea is what, where the booker, promoter, thought these guys should be slotted over time. So when there's an injury and someone else substitutes, I, I generally don't consider that. I, I look at what the intent was for the card. And there are times when people are knowingly false advertised. Um, you know, if they're going to do an injury angle on TV, but they have to put him in the newspaper ads the week of. Again, if I'm looking at what they, what the promoters were thinking would draw, then I have to go based on what was advertised. You started with Kansas City and Amarillo, and I have to say, you know, to apply the system of using the spot, I don't know what statistic, I guess you would call well, it. Well, spot is statistic is in the word, I, uh, in the acronym. Yeah. I wouldn't say that, but by using spot, 
You started with Kansas City and Amarillo. Those are probably very easy examples of territories in terms of you know what's the opening match every single night, and you're going to pretty much know what the main event is almost every single night. Have you thought yet about, I mean, you are, as you said earlier, your own Supreme Court, about the internal deliberations you may have when you get to, let's say, 1983 AWA, and Hogan doesn't do those December shows, but he was billed, and they sold out. You know, like, how how do you deal with all that? I will figure that out when we get to it. And, and, and again, you know, think, think of what I'm trying to measure is who the promoters had the most faith in to draw a house, whether by hook or by crook. That isn't necessarily where I'm, what I'm looking to analyze. So if they're knowingly false advertising Hogan or if, you know, if they put him on the ads and then you know, whatever happens, based on, and particularly, you know, if you link it to attendance, well, it was clear that Hogan was responsible for putting those asses in seats, even if he didn't actually show up. You're doing territories, obviously, right now. Have you thought about the idea of doing, let's say, Andre, a year in the life of Andre? I, I did a career path, and, um, and this was a more back of, hand, back of the hand calculation several months ago. I did it for Jesse Ventura. And to me, that's where this, you know, the spot has value because you can see Jesse starts in, in, you know, the undercard in central States goes to Portland where he starts in the middle of the card, but pretty quickly moves up. And then you just follow him as he goes. And, and I also keep track of whether he's a heel or a face. Um, if you go to the website, it's charting the territories.com for every three month period of a territory, I list the wrestlers in descending order by their spot, but I also color code it. So you can separate easily at a glance who's a babyface and who's a heel. So you can look at Jesse Ventura over the years as he goes from territory to territory and see what his spot is in each territory and how that changes over time and how, particularly when they first go to the WWF, he starts in the middle of the card as he's being built up. They're giving him wins over prelim guys or mid-card guys before he elevates to the main events. And, And that is pretty neat. And also look at someone like Steve Kern, who stayed in Florida for many, many, many years, but gradually over that time worked his way up the cards. I think this is a neat tool to sort of see how that happens over the years. Well, in explaining it to the listeners, let's give an example here. I'm looking at one of your posts. This is Central States 1966 Part 4. Okay. And for instance, the bottom with a 304 average, I'm um, talking like a baseball announcer here, but <laughs> Jim Grabmeyer, the very bottom, 304. So I'm going to assume that means Jim Grabmeyer was in the opening match every single night out. Uh, off the top of my head, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say opening match every single night, but towards the bottom of the card. Central States at this point in time, depending on the town, was running you know between four and six matches per show. So yeah, he's generally in the opening match or the second match. Now, the the most the more interesting name is next on that list and that is a very young Dick Murdoch. You know Dick Murdoch and I got to say I noticed that too when I was looking at your Amarillo results from 66, Jack Briscoe was at the bottom. Yeah, Jack Briscoe was a rookie at that point in time. He was he started out in Oklahoma from McGurk. He there's one newspaper ad in December of 1965 for an Amarillo spot show that lists a Tiger Briscoe that I think is Jack, but have no way of knowing. But he came in for a short run um, as a rookie. And, and there's a great result that I point out that where he's teaming with Dory Jr. They wrestle each other. I don't know how many times, but they actually teamed 
on at least three separate occasions, and, and, and this was the first of those, which is neat to see them teaming up. But again, to your idea that you could actually chart the progress of a wrestler, Dick Murdoch in Kansas City in Central States is 357 average. At the very top, you have Bearcat Wright, 891. So more than anyone, actually, he's tied now that I look at it with Bob yeah. Geigel, which yeah, him and Geigel coincidentally enough owned the territory. <laughs> uh, but him and Bob Geigel tied with 891. And then after that, you have Mike DiBiase, Iron Mike DiBiase, with 870, and then Pat O'Connor with an 858 average. So, I mean, it really does show you these guys were the top guys. They were in every single match. And then in the middle of the card, for instance, Ricky Hunter has a 661 average. So that is, I mean, I'm going to guess if you have a 500 average, do you assume that you're in the middle of the card? Yeah, that that would be the equivalent of on a five-match card, You, you know, well, on a four-match card, you being second. Okay, so like, for instance, Lee Henning is here with a 507. Yeah. And then Luke Graham is right under that with a 495. So that's pretty much right in the middle of the card almost every single night for, is it a three-month period? Is it by quarter? This is, yeah, this is by quarter, by three-month period. And it's only for the matches they had in that three-month period. So when you have four, for instance, four quarters, you have a whole year of 66, do you then take it and you look at it as you take all the stats and you do it a whole year analysis of it? You could do that. I've And I've done that before. There's just, for most territories, there's far too many wrestlers in, in a one-year period to, to sort of keep track of, and it gets a bit unwieldy. I think three months is a good, a good amount of time that you can see. There's enough data that the numbers mean something, and there's enough movement in and out, but not too much movement in and out that you can see what happens as guys move in and out in the territory. Are you a sabermetrics guy? I got to know. Um, well, I'm, I'm, if this ever becomes a thing, I want to call it Zach Zaber Jr. Metrics. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. I mean, it is an interesting concept. How do you imagine utilizing it? Let's say you're researching the career of Dick Murdoch. Is it that you would go to his name and you would see per territory the spot, and again, spot a statistical position over time? Or would that number be for an entire year? Or how do you see it being used to analyze a wrestler's time or career? When, when I could see it. Yeah, I could see it being done per territory, per stay in a territory. So if he's in central states for a couple of months, you have that number that shows his spot while he was there. Then if he, if he moves to you know mid-south or Tennessee, however long he stayed there, that's the number. Of course, the longer they stay in one territory, the less that one number has significance and, and you'd be better off served looking at it over a shorter period of time. So if he's there for a year and a half, maybe look at it in three to four month increments. Um, or if there are significant changes in his stature, if he starts, you know, if he's moved up the cards after a couple of months, if he turns heel after a couple of months, if he's put into a tag team, those can affect, you know, his positioning on the cards on a consistent basis. So, you know, I envision a tool not unlike wrestlingdata.com where you can sort of, you know, drill things down, but in addition to seeing what their spot was for the whole time they were in the territory, you could then narrow the date range and, and see it there. I mean, it's just there's just so much data out there. Uh so many cards. You think, you know, if there are on average somewhere between 18 and 25 territories operating in a year, and I'm trying to cover a, a the period between 1966 and 1983. That's a lot of data, and most of these companies are running at least you know two shows a night. 
Whew. That's a lot of data. I, you know, I look at wrestlingdata.com and there's an ungodly amount of data on that site. And it's to, for the things I'm interested in, it's a very hard interface to use. I think it's an amazing yeah. tool. I, I think what they've done is great. And, and it looks like it was designed by people that know, that understood more about databases than they might have understood about wrestling. And, and if there's a way to tailor it and, and, and present a tool that would be of more value to people that know wrestling and want to see certain things, then that would be great. Um, I also, I look at the books uh, that are being put out by a lot of different people. They, you know, Mark James obviously has, has a great deal of books that he's done on Memphis. Um, there's some for Florida. Scott Teal has some books. Um, Dick Bourne from the Mid-Atlantic Gateway has at least one or two books. It'd be neat to add this spot data to some of their stuff. It's cool to just read a book of results, but then to add, you know, to add something else that sort of looks at, okay, now that you've looked at all these results, here's who was more likely to be in the main event. Here's who were, you know, were prelim guys or mid-card guys. It just adds a little more context to the content. The other thing is, you know, if you chart, you know, eventually you chart enough stuff that you could look at a booker or a territory over an extended period of time, and if it's a booker, it's in multiple places, and you could determine, hypothetically, how long approximately did someone work for this guy before they got dropped down on the card? Right, or, you know, it's very easy to follow where Gary Hart was booker, just look at where Don Jardine worked. Right, well, yeah, <laughs> um, obviously. <laughs> or another interesting thing, think about this, to look at turnover when a new booker come, takes over. Right, to see how quickly he gets rid of all the old guys. There was a story I heard about uh, when Eddie Gilbert got the book in Global. And he literally walked into the dressing room and all the, the Black Barts and, you know, whoever, the, the, the people that had wrestled in Texas forever were in the dressing room. And the, the story I heard was that Gilbert looked at them all and said, all right, get your shit and get out of here. The Tennessee boys will be here in 20 minutes. <laughs> So, you know, to see, to, you know, you can sort of get a feel for when, you know, I know I was looking at Florida, I think it was in 75 when I think it was, but well, Bobby Shane was supposed to get the book. And of course, uh, the plane crash happened. And I think shortly thereafter, they brought in Harley uh, and he was the booker. And very quickly, you see Roger Kirby come to Florida That's with right. a big push. Yep. And, and so, yeah, it's very easy to see based on who came into the territory exactly, you know, you can sort of get a feel for when a booker change probably happened. Yeah, you know, you could do that with Atlanta very easily. I know a lot of people always wonder, when did Jerry Jarrett really come in as booker? And actually, you can see Jim Barnett bought it in October. In December, Bill Watts drops the title. The next day, Jerry Lawler debuts on TV. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I <Yep>. see <laughs> when I, I think I see this you, happened. Jerry Jarrett. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, with Sabermetrics, obviously, I remember when a baseball card I shouldn't even say a baseball card. I remember when on TV, you really got average home runs, RBIs. That was it. And then they started adding on base. And then, obviously, if you're a sabermetrics guy or if you're in the fantasy, you know there's a statistic now for everything. I think there's too many. There's, there's some statistics I just don't need in my life at all. Yeah, what, um, what's, been, what's been happening, and actually, I was just reading a book uh, it's called Smart Baseball by, I think his name is Keith Law. He's an ESPN yeah. senior baseball analyst. And he talks about how he used to have Average plus home run plus RBI. Then you had the slash line of average on base and slugging. Then you had OPS. And then you have WAR. And then you have WRC. And right. people people just have a desire to look at one number 
and use that to evaluate someone. And that's what this is. And just like with any of those one numbers in baseball, there are a lot of things wrong with my spot calculations. And I, I readily admit this is a statistic I made up out of thin air and, and there's no judging system. It's just me doing this. It's a number that you can look at and just at a glance, okay, this guy was towards the top of the card. This guy was in the mid card. It's interesting. It's not the be all end all. But as I was talking about with all those statistics they now use in baseball, do you see this opening any other doors? Do you see, I mean, are you already thinking about other ways, other statistics you can apply to old wrestling results to really truly analyze the importance of someone on the card? Or obviously there are countless ways to analyze it, but are you already looking at other stats or other ways to use spot? You know, RBI is now part of other stats, you know, on base plus, you know, this is part of another stat. Are you looking at a way of taking spot and applying it with something else or other stats you can develop? I have given it a little bit of thought, and, and every time I do, what I get to in my head is it would be a lot more work for not a lot more valuable data. Uh, I think looking at this and what it does, could it be fine-tuned and made more effective? Probably. For As, as an example, there's no weight to different towns, and I think Bruno Sammartino main eventing Madison Square Garden should mean a lot more than Tony Gurria and Rick Martel headlining the Wacomico Youth, you know, Civic right. Center. And, you know, but this system doesn't take that into consideration. It also doesn't care whether the card has a double main event or if a traditional main event, semi-main event, and then prelims. Everything is treated the same. So it's it's flawed. And to Change that would require so much more work, and the results would probably barely change. It's flawed, but you can micro-focus it. I mean, for instance, if you focus on strictly Madison Square Garden or strictly arenas that drew over 15,000 people on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. you actually really could kind of micro-focus it and get something, as opposed to, like you said, if it's just main eventing, who main evented all the shows in a territory, then you have the issue of, you know, who main evented in uh, Paramus versus who reinvented it, you know, Madison so, Square yeah. Garden. So the next question is then, so can you link it to attendance figures? Problem with right. that is, do we have reliable attendance figures for every town run? No. I My guess would be no. And even if you did, how much of the attendance do you attribute to the main event versus the next match on the card and so on and so forth? And, you know, really for most cases, Attendance is based on the main event. So I, th- there has been a lot of research into main event stuff. I know Cornette in a lot of uh, in his Louisville book does make a point of, of listing who you know is in more main events than other wrestlers as, as being very valuable, and it is. My you know my thing is to look at the Jim Grab Myers of the world to use a name we brought up earlier. This guy was, you know, he was, I don't think he was ever a main eventer. I think probably he had some, some times in Pittsburgh when he was at or near the top of the card because he was a trusted and reliable hand. But for the journeymen of the world, for the Bobby Hart's, for the, you know, Don Fargo's, um, and, you know, one of the things that this would do would be to dispel the myth that a Dennis Stamp or a Mike Boyette was nothing but a prelim guy because they weren't. 
Uh, and, and it would be nice to be able to look at a glance at Dennis Stamp's career path and see, okay, he was, a, he was a, a main eventer in Amarillo. He was a top guy here. And just sort of look at that. Or someone like Don Fargo, who wrestled in every territory known to man at least three times and, and over a long career where he had different roles. It, it's fascinating to me to follow these paths. And, and as a guy, as a former wrestling manager, that's what interested me in getting into wrestling in the first place was the idea you could spend three months in Florida and then go to Texas for six months and, and travel the country. By the time I got into it, the territories were dead, but on a you know, smaller level, I was able to do that. I worked for Dennis Coraluzzo, I worked for Omega, I worked for Roland Alexander, I worked for Burt Prentice. That's what I always wanted to do. And to, to look and see what these guys did over the years is just fascinating. And to put a number on it, even if it's the you know not the most useful number in the world, it's a way to, at a glance, look at a wrestler and say, okay, that was their spot on the cards. And another interesting thing I want to point out to everyone, and once again, the website is chartingtheterritories.com. You also, you don't just have, you know, it's not just you go there and get statistics. You don't just get a number. You do a breakdown of who is listed in the chart, and you say who they were, why they were there, who they were feuding with. If they were there for just a cup of coffee, you explain it. So you really break down not just the number where they were on the card. You break down the entire territory for that three-month period of time. Yeah, I basically break it down by looking at, for each quarter, who you know came into the territory during that quarter. And for each person, I sort of look at where did they come from immediately before that? What territory were they in? Had they been in this territory before? And then I like to come up with one interesting fact about them. I will never claim to know more about Iron Mike DiBiase than anyone else. There are, there are some amazing online resources that go into depth about all these wrestlers, but I like to pull one interesting thing. For example, I spoke of Iron Mike DiBiase. Mike was in the 1947 NCAA Wrestling Championships in the heavyweight division. Also in that same tourney that year was Dick Hutton, Ray Gunkel, Bob Geigel, and Vern Gagne which is just amazing to me that, that that many top pros got their start you know, in amateur wrestling and were all in the same tournament. And I think in that same year in a different weight class was Joe Scarpa. Three territory owners too. Yeah. And that's the other thing that's really, you know, that again, that you knew going in, but that the guys with the highest spot tended to be the guys that owned the company behind the scenes or their kin or their trusted hands. And again, you can't really blame them, but that's sort of, you know, for people that follow the territories, like if anyone listening to this knows a little bit about Amarillo in 1966, you're not going to see anything in my spot rankings that will surprise you. You generally knew who the top guys are, who the mid-card guys are, but it's just, it's just, a neat way to follow the comings and goings. I also keep track of guys that leave the territory during that quarter and where they went to and if they ever came back. And I keep track of if the world champ came through, if Haystack came through, I track uh, the women wrestlers and the midges. And, and that's one of the unfortunate things about this is that the women and the midgets, their spot on the card wasn't necessarily based on the stature of the specific woman wrestler. I would say Mula probably was higher up on the card more often than not, but for the most for the most time when the women came to town, they were slotted somewhere in the middle of the card. And it didn't matter who it was, they were all generally in the same spot. So 
it's hard, you know, you can keep track of their movement and where they went, but it's really hard to see which one of them might have been more of a draw. Because unfortunately, the answer is none of them individually were, except for maybe Moolah, but it's just the fact that it was the women or the midgets. Those were a special attraction and those were a draw in and of themselves. Wow, this is all fascinating stuff, and I'm thoroughly intrigued by it, and I'm going to be diving in uh, as you keep doing this, and uh, this is really, really cool, and I'm going to start thinking about this as I do research, and as I go through results, the idea of applying a statistic and applying spot to it. It's a very interesting concept. I encourage everyone to check it out. At least give it a look. Chartingtheterritories.com, and uh, any final words you have before you leave this week? Uh, No, it's just thank you for having me on. Uh, You know, This was something that I've been thinking about doing for years is a labor of love. Looking at the results for the first few weeks, the site has been up. There were a lot of people that checked it out initially and said, oh, that's pretty cool. And that's pretty much it. And until I get to a year or a territory that they're really interested in, I think that's where we'll start getting in. I think 66 was a really early year to start with. I'm going to jump ahead in time and I'm going to look at 1978 for Goulas and for Jarrett. Oh, you're gonna it's gonna blow your mind when you find out that George Goulas is the first perfect one spot. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. I, I would say we were talking about that earlier. I would say uh peak Dusty, no, but peak Lawler, possibly, and peak Bruno, probably. Um Well that's but- see, there's where you're gonna run into another complication is when you look at after Backlund won the title, there are some of those shows where you're really gonna have to determine what's the main event. Is it Backlund or is it Bruno? Right. And that that's, you know, again, you know, looking at the ad, if, if that gives me the info I need, that would be great. But, you know, some cases it doesn't. And, and we're getting, you know, we'll get to the point where I'm going to need a jury of peers to evaluate every individual card, which sounds awfully tedious. <laughs> but yeah, chartingtheterritories.com. Follow me on Twitter at Al Getz Wrestling. That's G-E-T-Z, Al Getz Wrestling. There you hear it. Al gets on his very interesting concept there with spot and charting the territories again, charting the territories.com moving on here with the show. It is now time for us to go all the way. Boogeyman. Hey, boogeyman. What are you doing here? Yeah. Oh, last. Oh, I'm digging the newest jam from Ramsor records. The ruined brothers, brother, <laughs> the ruined brothers, brother. I know that's brother. Brothers from not Boogie's other mother. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about already, but welcome back to the show, Boogie Man. How you been? It's been a while. Oh, it definitely has been a while, brother. Hey, is this uh 605 top ten? Is that still up on blocks? <laughs> <laughs> the top ten's returning very soon, Boogie Man. But how have you been? Oh, been right as rain. But <laughs> like I told you, I love the Ruin Brothers. Fine young men, fine young. Where's that town they from in uh, jolly old England? Uh, Scunthorpe. Scunthorpe. Yes. Scunthorpe, England. Yes, I know it well. I believe I wrestled not Big Daddy in Scunthorpe. Sold out the hall. They still talk about it to this day. Woo! I'm sure not Alan Blackstock's a big fan of that match. It was a handicap match with myself and Cat Weasel versus Big Fat Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) A real barn burner, if you will. Well, anyway, Boogeyman, we need to move on here with the show. Uh, thank you for dropping by. It's nice uh, to hear your voice for the first time in a while. But we do uh, need to move you. on. As I was saying, uh, before I interrupted myself, uh, the handsome knock Jimmy is high on the Ruin Brothers. Henry and Rue. And a sensational cut, 50 Shades of Blue. 
Excuse me, that there was a misprint. Yeah, oh, I don't think that. I don't think that's the name of the song, Boogeyman. Oh my! Oh, <laughs> I dream of you through all my shades of blue. Oh, <laughs> I tell you, I, I'm very high, as I said. Yeah. On the Ruin Brothers. Well, clearly you're very high, Boogeyman. But on this topic, actually, it's funny you bring up the Ruin Brothers. Of course, they're on Ramsor Records, our friends. The wrestling fans over at Ramsour Records, R A M S E U R. You can go to ramsourrecords.kungfustore.com, enter the promo code 605 at checkout to save 20%. But uh, the Ruin Brothers, we talk so much about them here on the show. They have apparently a new album in the works, and they've left a message on the hotline. Oh, they have. That is so kind of them to send uh, words of gratitude to your handsome Jimbo. I'm very hum- I'm humbled, Lasto. Well, let me play this right now. This is a message that the Ruin Brothers left for us here on the Super Podcast Hotline. It's Rupert and Henry here from the Ruin Brothers, and we'd just like to share a quick message with you guys. Hey, guys. We're excited to announce that we're currently busy self-producing and recording our second album from our home studio in Brooklyn, and it's uh, being released on Ramsey Records next year. We're close to finishing the first single from the album that should be out very soon. We're eager for everyone to hear it. It's a classic sounding song, uh, which we've been having a, a lot of fun recording. A big thank you for all the support from the 605, the great Brian Last, of course, our secret other band member, Hot Dog, and uh, all the wonderful listeners over there. So peace and love. New music coming soon. Cheers, guys. Ruin Brothers. Well, there you go. What a nice message that is, Boogeyman from the Ruin Brothers. New album in the works coming soon from Ramsor Records. Yeah. And they are in Brooklyn right now. And uh, I can't wait right. to hear what they have coming next. That album was, is, I should say, my favorite so far of 2018. But uh, I can't wait to see what 2019 brings from the Ruin Brothers. Yeah. As right. we move on here with the I'm show, Boogeyman. Play, play the rest of the message. No, that was the entire message that they left on the hotline. That's it. That was uh, everything. Well, conspicuous by his absence, I might say, is uh, your humble, handsome Jimbo. Oh, I've never heard the Ruin Brothers reference you. I'm not even sure if they know who you are. Did I hear correctly? Did my ears deceive me, or did they throw in a reference to a certain hot dog? They did. They hot uh, dog. What in the bald-headed Baron von Rasky is this shit? Hot <laughs> <dog>. <laughs> well, boogeyman. Five product gets a shout out over me. That ain't right. No, 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 no. You know, last week I've got half a mind to just quietly walk away from all this top ten fame with my head held high. I'll knock his knock worse for a loop. <laughs> I'm like Coca-Cola. I'm all over. I'm irreplaceable, Lasto. That is probably my favorite one. That's a little aside. I'm like Coca-Cola. I'm all over. <laughs> That's my uh, favorite one. <laughs> laugh it up. You give me a lot to think about, TGBG. What? I had those ruined boys earmarked and penciled in as the headliners of Boogie Jam 19 right here in Shawsville, Virginia. But, uh, I'll just say this shines a different light on things. I guess so, Boogeyman. Maybe if you were up in Brooklyn, you'd have a better chance of actually meeting these musicians that you so desperately seem to want to be around. Hey, hey, the Boogeyman's got to run, okay? No songs. We got to go. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We we are the ones moving on with the show. You interrupted us. (laughs) Well, anyway, let's move on with the show. Once again, ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com and the Ruin Brothers. Stay tuned for more information right here on this show about what they have in store for you in the future. But let's now go to a few minutes I spent with Ron Fuller talking about Jose Lothario. 
I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast someone I am very happy to call a very good friend of mine, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Proud to be here. Always an honor, man. You know, the other day, obviously, Jose Lothario died, and listeners of the Studcast have heard his name on the Studcast in the past, but you sent out a tweet. It was a very nice tweet about Jose and you remembering him and his wife from Tucson, and his son, Pete Lothario. Uh, I assume it's the real deal. It doesn't seem like a fake Twitter account, but Pete Lothario tweeted out, Thank you for the kind words. My dad had much respect for your father and has said on many occasions that he had a great mind for the business. So I wanted to get you on to talk a little bit about Jose. He just passed, but you did get to know him. What do you remember about him? I remember he was a great guy. Uh, just this is an opening comment. I mean, uh, just a wonderful person. And we spent a lot of time with Jose. Uh, I didn't meet o- Jose until I was in the eighth grade. Uh, my dad and I, uh, dad had been uh, out of Memphis. Uh, he just finished his run in Memphis and he wanted to go back into wrestling promotion, and he had an opportunity to go to Arizona. There was no one, I don't know that they were even running wrestling in Arizona at that time frame. And uh, we went into Arizona. We lived in Tucson in 1962, and he was putting together a crew. Obviously, uh, there's a large Mexican population in the state of Arizona. He's looking for a top-notch Mexican wrestler, and uh, Dad somehow finds Jose Lothario. And, boy, he couldn't have found a better talent. I mean, Jose is just a tremendous worker back in those days, and, and even bone into Florida and days after that. Uh, so we go to Arizona twice. Uh, we we go and live in Tucson in 1962, and for about a about a year. And Jose and his wife live in the same home with us. Uh, we get to really know Jose, and what a great guy! Great sense of humor, uh, a really really big hearted guy. And then we go back. We leave there and go back to Mississippi. We're living in Mississippi at a big farm Dad had back in that point in that time frame, and and we stayed there for about six months. And we go back to Arizona again, and Jose leaves after we do, and we go back. And there's a guy that has bought the promotion from Dad, and he's trying to run. He's not doing well. It's about to go underneath. Uh, Dad's not getting paid. So in 1963, we go back to Arizona, and he gets a hold of Jose and brings Jose back in, and Jose kind of lights it up again for the second time. Just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And and I have a story about him. It's a little different type of story than what I normally tell, but uh, they had a dog. It was a Datsun, and uh, it's uh, the weenie dog, you know, kind of long body and the short legs. And his wife would always call him Bieco. And we didn't speak Spanish, you know, and uh, so we thought that she was calling him Honey, you know, some nice name, you know, Bieco, Bieco, Bieco. You know, she would say, hey, Bieco, do this, Bieco, do that. And uh, so when we left in uh, 63 to come back uh, to the farm in, in Mississippi, Dad gets a Datsun, uh, you know, and he liked their dog and they had a good personality and it was a sweet little dog. And, and Dad uh, took that dog and they did a lot of crazy things with the dog. Uh, he would put cigarettes. He would have them sit up. He would put uh, little hats on her head and put a cigarette in the side of her mouth and take these pictures with the dog. The dog was a really nice dog, would do anything, a very, very smart dog. 
And uh, we named the dog Bieco. And uh, so one day we've got a Spanish wrestler and he's visiting us. And uh, so the dog runs through the house and I go, hey, Bieco, come here. And uh, and he goes, uh, that's a strange name for your dog, you know. And, and and I go, well, yeah. We, he, how do you get? How did you get to calling? It's a it's a male dog, you know. No, it's a female dog. I say. So he goes, well, how did you how did you get to calling? So I tell him the story about uh, living with Jose and his wife and her calling Jose Bieco all the time. And uh, he says, do you know uh, what Bieco means? And I said, no. As a matter of fact, I don't. You know. And he says, it means old man. <laughs> so I said, so you mean we've been having this female dog for three or four years and calling her old man? And he goes, that's exactly right, son. Because you've called your dog old man, uh, I guess, as long as you've called her that name. I said, well, that is her name. That's what she goes by, and she knows that name. So uh, it turns out that uh, we name our, our Dotson after Jose basically in a way and uh, it turns out jose uh, is being called old man by his wife and we never really knew it but uh he was a tremendous talent in the ring a fabulous worker and uh, back in those days in arizona that was a very dangerous territory those people liked it they really loved their wrestling and they got into matches and when you got jose down and when you got jose bleeding uh, you could expect you were going to have trouble. And they they had riots uh, probably uh, four nights a week in Arizona back in those days. And they had built a great business there. Uh, when we went back in 63, we didn't leave until he, he told us when we went back there. He says, we're going to go back and stay there for six months. And we're going to make enough money to come back and stay on our farm here forever. I don't know how much money we made, but I do remember that the last house he drew in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, was over 20,000 people. So he went out there and lit up a part of the country that had never really been a wrestling-oriented part of the country. And uh, and they, they used guys like Jose Lothario, and I really loved Jose, and uh, very sorry to see him pass. He was uh, a fine example of uh, the Mexican people. And as and a human being, it's itself. There you hear it. The Tennessee stud Ron Fuller, host of the Studcast, right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, with a few words about Jose Lothario. And of course, we talk about Jose Lothario in Arizona in that segment. Who who are you? What who? What are you doing? Who are you talking to, Brian? What, what Can you, you not hear me? What are you doing here? Are you? Well, what do you mean? What am I doing here? Are you ready to record the experience? <laughs> well, that's why. Why do you think I'm on Skype? Well, I what didn't know you were on Skype. I didn't know you could just jump into my my ongoing recording going on. Well, here. no, I just I just hit the thing and it and it played this the the song that it plays, and then I just I heard you babbling on and like you were already started the show without me. Did you start the show without me? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But let me continue babbling for just one more second here. We're gonna go now to a conversation I had with friend of the show. Peter wait, wait a minute. You're do, wait a minute. You're doing your own show. I'm in the middle of my own show. We're supposed to be doing the experience. Who gets the ratings hold, around here? Hold on. We're doing the experience in a couple minutes. I didn't know you could just jump in the middle of the recording here. Give me well, a couple I've minutes. Somehow, you know, you know, I had, I had, uh, I had my stuff rewired. 
perhaps I've I've plugged something in the wrong way. Are you? I've, do you have a plug in you that's that's bothering you? Uh, there's something bothering me. We'll figure out what that is in just a moment. Pull but that listen, plug out. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to try to restore some sanity here to the program. Peter Burkholz returns to the show to talk about Jose Lothario, who, of course, was a major star in Houston for his uncle, Paul Bosch. We're also going to talk a little bit about Ray Gunkel and the Atlanta War. Of course, I've done several segments recently about that here and on the Studcast and on the Jim Cornette Experience. And I wanted to. Oh, now you mentioned me. I'm just sitting around just like a a piece of garbage on the side of the road that you've just left here. And you're just, I'm just, I'm just sitting here like a bump on a log. It's like Beetlejuice. I say your name and you just reappear right in the middle of the show. I'm sitting here like a frog on a log. I'm ready to jump. If you don't mind, please, if you feel like jumping, go for it. But listen, before you do that, I just want to make reference of one more thing here. Of course, we've done so much work about the Atlanta War. One of the interesting things I wanted to know. Peter Burkholz, what was he hearing at the time? Obviously, there was a story that had been out. I don't know. Why are you asking? I'm not asking you. I'm talking to the listeners. Well, you just asked a question. I'm I'm the only one on the line here. I thought you were talking to me. Well, with that said, one of the things I talked to Peter Burkholz about is what he was hearing at the time about what was happening in Atlanta. I wanted to understand what their perspective in Houston was, considering that Ray Gunkel had been a major star there years earlier there's a little bit of some audio difficulties at times i think it should be okay but with that let's now go away from jim Cornette huh. and to this conversation with peter burkholz I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today a very popular guest on the show and also someone who's been a great friend of the show, Peter Burkholz from Houston Wrestling and, of course, the author of When Wrestling Was Wrestling, the wild and exciting inside story of the legendary Houston Wrestling promotion. And, Peter, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I wish uh, we could start off talking about a happier subject, although I guess we're going to talk about happy moments here. But obviously, Jose Lothario just passed away. And I assume that many wrestling fans, when they think about him, they think about the same thing I do, which is Houston. They think about maybe him and Gino Hernandez or maybe him and El Gran Marcus, him and the great Malenko. You know, there's such a strong connection, not just with other Texas cities and Jose Lothario, but specifically with Houston. And that's correct. And I, and Brian, first of all, thank you for this opportunity to talk about Jose Lothario. He was one of my most favorite people in the entire business. And I was sad to hear that he passed away, but it gives me talking to you today an opportunity to talk about my, my feelings about Jose and how much respect we had for him and how, how much Houston wrestling fans and, and Paul Bosch and I loved Jose. He was a class act, Brian. He really was. And, and when I looked back and after hearing about his passing and started to really reminisce about what he meant to Houston wrestling, I started to realize that he was a, a, a very important ingredient to Houston wrestling, especially in the uh, starting in the early 70s and so forth. He had been a star there in the 50s on and off and in, in the 60s. But he, and along with several other great workers like Wally McDaniels and Johnny Valentine and so forth, they helped Paul Bosch build Houston Wrestling back up to where it was, because uh, in the late 60s, with an ailing uh, Morris Eagle, it was not getting the attention that it needed. But Jose Lothario was a great worker, and more important, he was a great gentleman. Do you remember when you first met him? I remember a little bit in the 50s, but I was, a, I was just a little boy in the dressing room. I, uh, I recall those days where my uncle... Um, 
Paul Bosch would have put let me go into the dressing room. And I look back at it now, Brian, and I realize what I was the role I was playing, even as a little boy, was I I must have been a surrogate son for some of those wrestlers who back then, as you know, when they when they were on tour, they didn't jump on a plane and fly home and so forth like that. Sometimes they were away from the family weeks, months. And yeah. so they were always it was always great. I do remember meeting him there, very quiet. But I really, when I got involved with the promotions, when I got to know him uh, both personally and professionally, uh, I, I once again uh, very impressed with him and what he was able to do for us. Talk about Jose the man, not the Jose Lothario you would see in the ring or being interviewed by you or your uncle. But what was he like behind the scenes? What kind of guy was he? He was really a nice guy and, and somebody very trustworthy, and I considered a, a good friend. Uh, and then when I look back, when, you got to realize when he wrestled as many years as he did for us at Houston Wrestling, but also, um, as you know, I promoted a, a spot shows around the Houston area, and he was always one of my top main eventers. Out of all those shows, I don't ever recall him not making a booking, which back then, that was that was saying quite a bit because travel was not that easy. And you can imagine working somewhere for 20-something years there always were conflicts and other things that came up. He was always there, always gave 110%. But as a guy, very nice. And I enjoyed traveling with him the few times I traveled from a, one town to another with him. Great stories. Always cared about the uh, wrestling fan. Always cared about the promoters. I'm, he even showed respect to all the, the uh, promotion staff. I mean, a lot. some of the wrestlers would not... Uh, uh, do that, but Jose was always there, yeah, you know, being very gracious to everybody. I mean, uh, even the commissioner enjoyed Jose Lothario because they would enjoy talking and visiting with each other. Peter, you had a ringside view to over a generation of Houston wrestling, and I'm curious how you would describe Jose in the ring. What made him stand out in the ring? He was a great worker, but a very unselfish worker. He, he, Jose knew his role. And his role was to make the other guy look good. And he did. In fact, uh, Brian always kind of kidded him about it uh, with tongue in cheek. Poor Jose, he would be a, he would help us bring in these top uh, wrestlers from Mexico, whether it's Mil Moscardis, El Halcón, you know, the Dos Terras, and, and all these people, and also the, the, the heels, El Grand Marcus and so forth. Jose knew his role. His role was to get them over. And, the, and then when you look at the top stars like El Santo, El Santo was a movie star, a legend in Mexico. When he came to Texas, he would draw generations of wrestling fans, bring in their grandchildren and so forth to see him. And Jose knew his role. That's why many times we would work him in as a tag team partner of El Santo because El Santo was not very big. And if you remember, in back in those days especially, Houston wrestling heels were big. And so Jose knew his job and the tag team. He'd go in there and he'll get the heat. The heel will get the heat on Jose and Jose barely make it over there and touch El Santo. El Santo comes in, saves the day, but then El Santo quickly checks out and poor Jose is the one that has to get the, uh, give the heel the opportunity to get the heat back. But he knew that and he was not, he was not selfish. He would put over when it was time to put over. He, he had this very unique ability and this rapport with Houston wrestling fans. Jose could lose, but they would not lose confidence in him because they knew he was ultimately as a winner and he would come back and win. And back then, you couldn't do that to too many Mexican stars. 
they had to, you had to be very careful because once they lost, they lost a lot of respect to the fans. But Jose didn't. He was able to always come back. And I think it has a lot to do with it because uh, when he got in the ring, he performed and he was unselfish. He put the other guy over and he had a great match. Beyond that, how important do you think it was that, unlike a lot of the wrestlers that came up from Mexico, he was able to communicate in both languages on promos? Oh, very important. We always had Jose uh, uh, go into the bilingual. And the, the other reason, the other thing is Jose prepared the situation. I mean, it, 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 you just didn't bring in Emil Moscas El Santo. You brought him in because uh, a couple of uh, heels jumped Jose or Jose's in a wild feud and he's outnumbered, and he would bring him in. So naturally, his friends from Mexico, they appreciated Jose because when they were flown in, the situation was already created. And we would have a big crowd and a big box office and a big payoff, and Jose set all that up. And you just couldn't do that without him being willing to uh, uh, be the one to put the heels over to get the heat. But then when El Moscatus and El Santo and so forth came in town, Jose and the legendary hero from Mexico, ultimately would be victorious. And that just doesn't happen. As you know, it's got to be worked and, and for sometimes weeks, months at a time. As you mentioned earlier, Jose had been in and out of Houston for years. You know, he debuted in the late 50s, and he had been around for a while. He was established, and he was loved by the fans. And by the point of the mid-70s, late 70s, he was seen differently than he was maybe 10 years earlier. He was a veteran by this point. And this is where Gino Hernandez comes in. He's a character that, to this day, fascinates wrestling fans. And if we go back to the very beginning, I'm curious if you can tell us what you remember about Gino and Jose being put together, how long they were together before the split, and in your eyes, how important was Jose Lothario to getting Gino Hernandez over to the next level in Houston? Jose uh, should take all the credit for it because what a lot of Houston wrestling fans didn't realize and so forth is that Gino, you know, Gino's father was good friends with Jose. I mean, there was a, uh, there was a lot of family uh, connection there. When I say family, they may not be blood family, but there was a lot of family connection of back in the days when Gory Guerrero and Luis Hernandez and all these, uh, uh, Ricky Romero, all these people would be in Texas and Jose was younger and, and, and part of that group. But Jose was taking Gino down to Mexico and getting him booked. And Gino was only 16 years old. And what he did was, so when Gino made his so-called professional debut, Houston Wrestling, on basically his 18th birthday, because he could not wrestle in Texas, could not work in Texas under the age of 18, he had already had a couple of years under his belt working down in Mexico. And that was that was all Jose, lining up and traveling with him and teaching him. And they, uh, Jose really put a lot of effort into Gino, and Gino always respected that. And then, yes, there was a split, you know, what the, the part of that was a work. But near the end there, there was a little bit more. Uh, they didn't have the closeness and togetherness that they once had. But at the same time, I think they both loved and still respected each other to the very end. What do you remember about the actual feud that Gino and Jose Lothario had that the fans of Houston wrestling would have seen? Well, what I remember is that we were trying very hard to put Gino as a baby face, okay? And he was. As uh, was very good looking. He had the background we talked about for a long time in the program, his connection to Lewis Hernandez, who was a big Houston wrestling favorite, and all the others. And with Jose Lothario under his wing, 
But there was something about Gino, and if you knew Gino, Gino had a little. Um, he was a little bit conceited, and he was he was he was not as open warmly with the fans as we wanted him to. But the fans, wrestling fans, always amazed me how they were able to feel that. You know, when you take a look at Gino Nandis, we kept pushing him babyface, babyface. But there's something about Gino; they weren't quite sold that he's a good guy. We kept saying he was. And I always think of, you know, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Remember how they first they tried to tell him as the big baby face, his father, Rocky Johnson, his grandfather, uh, Peter Maivia, and good-looking guy, great body, football player, star, the whole bit. They couldn't quite get it over. And it wasn't until they realized that then when he turned heel and then started to get the respect of the fans there, and then he came back as a good guy, where wrestling fans always love the star who repents. And that's what we had to do with Gino. And, finally, you know, we came up with the, near the end of the gimmick with the gorgeous Gino and the blonde hair and so forth. We never really got able to get him back and have him repent as a as number one baby face in Houston. However, he was gaining respect because he was tough. Um, unfortunately, we lost Gino long before we wanted to, and, and, and we weren't able to do that. But I think The Rock is, is a perfect example Start off baby face, not quite getting over, go heel, earn the respect of your toughness. And the, but when you come back and repent and become a good guy, you just took a whole different level. Obviously, Gino and Jose were very close during this period of time. A generation later, to many wrestling fans, they know Jose as being the trainer of Shawn Michaels. A very similar relationship early in Shawn Michaels' career with Jose training him and teaching him the ropes. What do you think it was about Jose that made him so good at taking guys under his wing. I pointed out as before, being unselfish. I mean, Jose put the business first. And I think you, in order for you to be a really good teacher, you've got to be willing to give a part of yourself. And you look back at all the teachers you've had uh, going to school and so forth or in the business. They did something about them that they just non- had unselfishness. And Jose really went out of his way to help Gino out of respect to his dad and, uh, family and but the, on Shawn Michaels I remember early in a couple times that I remember Shawn Michaels as a teenager would come to the matches I think would travel with Jose did not know him did not know that at the time he was training Shawn Michaels Shawn Michaels was being trained right about that same uh time I was easing out of the business so I I didn't see firsthand but I can imagine Jose teaching him and, and, and really, uh, from what I could tell, uh, he saw Michaels turn into a super, superstar. And, and uh, I've even heard that he gives a lot of that credit to Jose and, and probably justifiably so. Peter, when you look at all the great babyface attractions that you had in Houston wrestling, specifically in the years after Morris Siegel passed in 1967, the years that your uncle and you were there, where do you rank Jose on the list of all-time great babyfaces? He has to rank up there high. Now, in the late 60s, early 70s, he wasn't on the same level as a Walker McDaniel and Johnny Valentine, but he, he had the, the fans started to like him, and he had a solid support. He, he wasn't up one week and down the next week. He was solid, and uh, as a result, he just worked his way up to the top, and when he got there, as I mentioned before, he was so solid that he was somebody who could do business and still stay on top. He, and so, but because the fans had that much respect for him. But we, uh, my uncle and I were blessed with some tremendous workers. 
in the late 60s and early 70s. When I look at the card, when I go back and I've got this Houston Wrestling uh, program collection where I've got every single Houston Wrestling program from 1945 every week all the way through until Paul and I got out of the business. And and the what I looked at the, the, the talent that we had in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, you could see why we, in the early 70s, we, we were, uh, uh, in many ways, we were looked upon as the wrestling capital of the country in those few years because we were drawing tremendous crowds week after week after week. But when you had the workers that we had, you can see why it, it took place. You know, speaking of great stars in Houston wrestling history, I did want to ask you about another one while I had you here, Peter. And many of the listeners know I've done extensive work recently, some with Ron Fuller, some here on this show, talking about the Georgia War of 1972. Obviously, you were not directly involved in that. You were in Houston wrestling. You guys had your own things going on. But I want to talk to you about one of the people who, while not directly involved in the war itself because he had passed, obviously he was there right before it, and that's Ray Gunkel. We think of him, we think of Georgia. But he had a long history as a star in Houston as well. He, he sure did. And I do remember back then, please keep in mind, we did not have Internet. We did not have iPhones. There was not a whole lot of communication of keeping up what was taking place in other promotions. I mean, besides, and it sounds kind of archaic now, looking at wrestling magazines. I mean, we weren't even seeing at that time the Superstation or any wrestling shows from other parts of the country. So we were kind of isolated. but. Ray Gunkel being such a, a big star in Houston wrestling, especially back in the 50s and, and 60s, uh, my uncle knew him quite well. And I do remember my uncle being quite upset on what took place. And, and all I could do is talk about what I had heard and, and what my uncle had to say and so forth. And I, Brian, I come right out front. I do not know the details. I do know the wrestling business. There's two sides to every story. And I do know that there must have been more to it than what I was hearing. But I remember there was quite uh, uh, the old timers like my uncle were quite upset that right after Greg uncle passed, that his wife showed up. And my understanding was his desk and so forth was out in the hall, sort of speak. And that they thought that it should have been handled with a little bit more class. But please. Keep in mind, I didn't know all the facts and so forth, but I do remember my uncle being quite upset that it was not handled differently. But from that, I do not know anything more than that. But I do remember Ray Gunkel being a big heartthrob in Houston wrestling fans, and, and they, they talked about him long after uh, he was gone as being, you know, along the lines of Pepper Gomez and all those that, that were big, handsome baby faces. Right around the time everything broke out in Georgia, a little bit after that, early 73, we're talking now. There was some other controversy going on in wrestling. There was going to be a title change in Houston. You guys were going to get the big Jack Briscoe title win over Dory Funk Jr. It had been built up for a long time. It was going to be a big moment, and it was going to be in your ring. It was going to be in the Sam Houston Coliseum, and it didn't happen. Of course, Dory Funk Jr. would, and I have to be careful how I say this, the claim from the Dory Funk Jr. side, and I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying enough people say that it's not true that I have to say it this way. The claim from the Dory Funk Jr. side was there was a tractor accident on Dory Funk Sr.'s ranch, and Dory Jr. hurt his shoulder to the point where he couldn't wrestle. Therefore, Houston lost the title match. Harley Race would later win the title in Kansas City from Dory Funk Jr. before, finally, in Houston, dropping the title to Jack Briscoe. But 
in early 73, when this is going on with Dory Funk Jr. and Jack, what are you guys hearing in the office? What do you guys believe in the office? Well, we, we had mixed emotions because you've got to remember we were both uh, very strong members of the N- NWA and big supporters. And we, we had put off a lot of our promotion into the, the, the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight title was always a big part of Eastern wrestling. Even back in the days, the NWA was formed and, and Moore Siegel was one of the vice presidents. So we had that support, but there was always this question mark. And the, and the timing of it, too, was I remember distinctly we had already put, sent the Eastern Wrestling program to the printer. And I remember we, I had to quickly call the printer and run over there with the story about the Dory Funk Jr. injury. So it caught us off guard. We wanted to believe what the Funks were saying. At the same time with the wrestling business, you always know that there's politics involved. And it was very disappointing because it was, we were all geared up. And the fact that it wasn't taking place, we always had that element, too, that are we going to be given a world title change or what just what's going to take place? So to answer your question, mixed emotions. We supported the NWA. We liked the funks. We wanted to, we wanted to believe the story. But if someone was to tell me today that there was politics involved and not a tractor, I would not be shocked. What was your uncle's relationship with some of the other principals involved there? Obviously, Eddie Graham was the big backer of Jack Briscoe, Dory Sr., the big backer of Dory Jr., and Sam Mushnick trying to play the middleman. Those three powerhouses in the wrestling business, what was your uncle's relationship with them? As far as I remember, he had a good relationship with all three. Uh, Paul was, we were a member of the NWA, Eastern Wrestling was, but Paul never served until the later years when I was working with Jim Crockett, the later years on the board, uh, was not involved with the championship committee and so forth. He did go to the NWA conventions, but he was, as you pointed out, not one of the big players because most of the people you talked about had territories. Um, and Paul always was very content in promoting Houston wrestling. Is that one promotion? Did we never took uh, opportunities to spread out and create our own territory? Uh, even though there are some opportunities that presented themselves. So I think his role was he was satisfied with his limited role with NWA. And as far as I can remember, I never remember him having any trouble with. Uh, with any of those three that you mentioned, especially Sam Munchnick, who uh, they both had a great respect for each other. Very similar situation, St. Louis and Houston, really a town more than a territory. That's correct. And when you think about it, when I was doing the research for my book, When Wrestling Was Wrestling, and I did a lot of research on it, but I can tell from learning more about you and what you're doing is I really wanted to get the historical perspective done right. And when I did a lot of research and went back, to the 40s and so forth, and even early when the NWA was forming, I until I started to do my research, research, I didn't realize Morris Siegel was such an important person involved. He was not as important as Sam Muchnick, obviously, but he was instrumental in helping get the NWA not only started, but then being able to support it by giving the NWA world title uh, great prestige, and not only in Houston, but also be involved in encouraging other promoters to be the part of the, of the National Wrestling Alliance. But there is a lot of parallels between Sam Muchnick and my uncle, and even though I never really got to know him very well, Larry Medesick, 
I, I sometimes feel like Larry Matisic and I could probably spend some time comparing stories because I think in a lot of ways he played a very similar role as that played with my uncle Paul Bosch in Houston Wrestling when he was supporting Sam Muchnick, who was a right-hand person. So, no, it's two unique towns, two unique original promoters. Uh, and I and I see I saw St. Louis and Houston as being some very important pillars of strength and support for the overall NWA. Peter, as always, I thank you for giving us a few minutes here on the Super Podcast. But before we wrap things up, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your book? I know we've talked about it in the past here on the show, but once again, when wrestling was wrestling, tell the listeners how they can get it and also a little bit about it. Thank you, Brian. It, when wrestling was wrestling, I wrote the book because I really wanted someday to any wrestling fan who either lived during that period or somebody who's younger and never knew what it was like to professional wrestling being promoted in territories and re- in regional territories. And I really did a lot of work, research and work to show it. wrestling fans out there. I encourage you that if you really wanted to know what it was like back in the territorial days of professional wrestling, to get this book, When Wrestling Was Wrestling, it's still available on Amazon, and it's also available on Kindle. And because I did a week-by-week, year-by-year, you get to feel what it was really like to be a promoter. The stories involved, you get a real good feel of what it was like to be a wrestler, a worker back then. And that the, I, this is a book that I would think would be a tremendous gift for any wrestling fan for Christmas or for birthday, but for Christmas coming up, if you've got a wrestling fan or even for yourself, it'd be a great gift that because it's going to give you a lot of insight of what it was really like when wrestling was wrestling. And I hope to enjoy it. And I, when I get readers that send back their thank yous and how much they enjoyed the book, it made it all worthwhile. And, and Brian, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because one of the things I do is all the proceeds that go from this book I'll give it to various charities because that's what Paul Bosch and I were all about, giving back to the community. So when wrestling was wrestling, uh, I encourage everybody out there to, if they haven't read the book, to read it. I'll give it as a gift. And I'd like to make sure that with people like yourself, we keep the history of professional wrestling alive so that fans today realize that wrestling just didn't start 10 years ago. It's been around for a long time. There it is, Peter Burkholz, a friend of the show, returning here this week to speak about Jose Lothario, someone he obviously thought very, very highly of. And we thank him for being here this week, and I'm sure you'll be hearing him again on the show in the future. But with that, it's time for Book of the Week! Book of the Week! <laughs> Hold on, are you still here, Boogeyman? I'm still lurking about. What did you say, Boogie the Week? Boogie the Week! <laughs> All right, well, listen, I gotta I gotta actually do this show, Boogeyman. Hey, Boogeyman, you hear that? Where? What? I think someone's calling you on the hotline. Go, uh, go take that call. Let me just step out for a moment, my brother. That would be great. Well, book of the week this week is When Wrestling Was Wrestling, the wild and exciting inside story of the legendary Houston wrestling promotion by wrestling promoter Peter Burkholz. You just heard him here. You've heard him in the past here on the show with amazing, great stories. He knows his stuff. He didn't just live it. He went back and researched it. Just great stuff. If you care about the history of Houston wrestling, if you've enjoyed Peter on the show, check out this book. I think you will enjoy it. I know I have, and I've used it for reference many, many times. Really, really cool stuff here. When Wrestling Was Wrestling, our book of the week. 
And of course, you can get that as well as anything else you need for the holidays, for your mistress, to bribe people, whatever it may be. You can go to Amazon and use our show link, which of course is tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Of course, by using that link, you pay no more than you would normally pay at Amazon. You do nothing differently than you would do when you go to Amazon, except you use this link and we get a little bit of love and support and credit from our friends, the good people at Jeff Bezos' company. Amazon. There is no better way to support this show. If you're going to be making purchases for the holidays, use this link and it does help this show out. And uh, we got some really cool things in store for you in the weeks and months ahead. So uh, be a good time to support the show, I think. Once again, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows beg you to support them. You have to ask yourself, are you someone that puts quality first? Are you someone that puts the good shit first, or do you accept the lowest common denominator? Do you accept shit off the floor from the bottom of the fucking toilet? I don't think so. You listen to this show. That means you have a little bit of class. So I think when the time comes and you have to ask yourself, which show should I support? Should you support them or us? I think the answer will be quite clear. I think if you sit down and you think about it for a millisecond, the answer will be really, really clear. Fuck those guys. Fuck those guys. Oh, I didn't know you were still here, Boogeyman. I forgot you were here. No. Support the uh, Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. I, and, poked uh, my, I poked my head back in the door when you talked about getting a present for your mistress. No. <laughs> okay, well, listen, Boogeyman. We have to move on here. We're going to now go to a really fun conversation I had with Jeff Steele. We're going to talk about a number of things, including Jeff Baldrin. Jackson, Mississippi, the Culkins, Mid-South Wrestling, and so much more. Check this out right now. Here is Jeff Steele. I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast someone I have been looking forward to speaking with, a longtime friend of Jeff Baldron's, which usually is enough to get someone kicked off the show. But in this case, we're going to have him on. We're going to be talking Mid-South Wrestling. We're going to be talking about wrestling in the state of Mississippi today with Jeff Steele. Many of you may know him as one of the giants of Southern gospel music, and now he is here to talk Mid-South Wrestling. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here, and I know how it is with Rowdy Bowdy, the Booker Baldwin. You, you have to take what you get with him. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's before we get into you and the wrestling you grew up in and the wrestling you were involved in and Katsabulus and everything else, Let's jump ahead a little bit. How did you first meet Jeff Baldrin, and what did you first think of him? Well, we, uh, if I remember right, we were in New Orleans, I think, for of all things, the Crockett Cup Tag Team Tournament. And I know that makes very little sense, and you may have more information than I do on that, why the Crockett Cup would have been developed in New Orleans, because that was not Crockett's territory. But I met, I met Jeff there, and, uh, of course, you know, both of us were, I, I guess, Marks would be the wrong word, and uh, people that that knew what it was all about. We were right kind of in the middle. You call it Smarks or something. And we just started talking about stuff that we'd read about in some of the sheets, and maybe we'd seen it on tape trading back and forth with people in other areas or Japan or something. Struck up a fast friendship, and, oh, man, I spent so many hours on the phone with Jeff through the years. I was a young guy, not yet married. Uh, he was a young guy, not yet married, 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 but however it works that way. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Jeff can pick him now. I'll tell you that. He's got a great wife now. And we just, we talked and talked, talked. And he finally came to see me when I lived in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, he was talking, he and I were talking yesterday. We did a pro wrestling show 
at uh, my radio station. I was in the radio business back then, and uh, it's the funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. Uh, we all had our characters. This is a piece of what we were doing then. My little brother was there with us, and he was playing one of the four horsemen. And uh, during the, the show as it developed, I started calling him Skinny Horseman in Training, S-H-I-T. <laughs> and we would do things with We'd take the camera to the bathroom in the radio station. We'd open the door, and he's sitting on the commode saying stuff like, can I get any privacy in here? And all that's recorded on that tape. So um, good memories, and uh, Jeff's been a great friend for probably four decades. Somehow Jeff didn't trade that tape around, but uh, we'll get to talking about that at another time. I got to ask you, though, Crockett Cup in New Orleans was 1986. That sounds about right. By that point in time, how long had you been reading the newsletters? When did you first discover the sheets? Well, I tell you, it didn't take long from the time I discovered them. Until I started to write, uh, I used to write for, for Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer. And, oh, if I could just have all the minutes back that I spent talking with Dave in those days and get a dollar for each minute, I'd be a wealthy man now. Because uh, Dave, at that point, was really starting to accelerate toward his zenith in the sheet business. And one of the nicest guys you would ever want to meet. I was so scared. I was a young pastor back in those days. And I went to Baltimore for one of the Crockett deals up there, flew out, went up there, met Baldrin there, and uh, we were going to have supper with Dave at a couple of places. And I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, you're this young pastor. They're all going to want to get up there and, and drink, 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 party, party, party. And here you'll be the odd man out. You cannot imagine the relief I felt one of these days I'll get up the courage to tell him. We stopped at our first eating slash drinking establishment, and they asked Dave what he wanted to drink, and he held up his hand and he said, oh, I don't drink. Don't worry about getting anything for me. And like the weight of the world went off my shoulders because I said, well, it may just be me and him, but at least two of us don't drink here. And several guys didn't drink, and very respectful crowd, and I know that might not mean anything to anybody else, but as a young minister, boy, Dave pulled the weight of the world off my shoulders. I also wrote for Wade Keller for a while, too. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember your name. Uh, you were someone who wrote for The Torch as well. Well, and, and look, I got nothing against Wade. Great guy. Enjoyed my time there. But as I remember, whereas Dave lifted the weight of the world off my shoulders, I think I ceased writing for The Torch because of some comments that I made in a couple of articles about some of the guys in wrestling that I thought were just maybe pushing the envelope a little bit too much. And if I remember right, and I could be wrong, and I'm not trying to dissuade or anything, but uh, I think he thought I was letting my religious bent get a little bit too involved in my writing. And he kind of let me know, not here. you know. So, but that's been a long time ago, and I, I love Wade and, and all the, the crew there. They've done a great job for a long time. Well, let's now go back to the very beginning, because obviously you are a wrestling fan. When did you first discover wrestling, and what were you first watching? I can. There are a lot of things I don't remember, but I do remember this. I was spending the night at Charlie Spence's house. We were elementary school guys, and wrestling came on at like 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. And when it turned, I'd never seen it before, but when we turned across that channel, it was the spoiler, Don Jardine, against Johnny War Eagle. 
And the spoiler put Johnny War Eagle in the claw hole, the dreaded claw hole. And blood started coming out from Johnny War Eagle's head underneath the spoiler's gloved hand. That's my first recollection of any kind of involvement in professional wrestling. And it, as so many of the guys will tell you now, it lit a fire in me. And I just, I never really had much interest in anything else besides that. I, I watched a lot of football, baseball, I'm a sports fan, but nothing like professional wrestling. How old were you there? And also, where were you living? I'm going to say I was probably 10 years old. It was in Jackson, Mississippi. And, uh, you know, like I say, things you experience in life, there are certain comments people have made to me in life about stupid, innocuous things that even though my memory is not great, I can always remember those comments. I was speaking at a, a religious gathering in West Virginia one night, for instance, and I, I shaved and got ready to go to the meeting. And when I got there, a man at the meeting who I did not know, and who's a much older gentleman than myself, he looks at me and rather angrily says, you missed the spot of that shaving cream behind your ear. I never forgot it. I mean, I don't know who the guy was. I don't know why shaving cream meant that much to him. But uh, I just never forgot it. But I remember that night very well. So talk about some of the early things you remember. What are some of the early angles? Who were beyond the spoiler in his claw? Who were some of the early guys that really stood out to you? Well, I can tell you the first angle that I remember, because it was such a quick angle. You know, now they'll take three months to build something up. This one got built up in three minutes. I'm watching Bill Watts on television there in Jackson, Mississippi. He's in the ring doing a quasi-squash match with uh, some guy who I can't remember. And in the middle of that match, Waldo Von Erich ran into the ring and beat Watts down with what they called a swagger stick. And remember now, in nineteen, the early 1970s, late 60s even, America's not out of World War II but by about 20 years. So Waldo had legitimate heat on him, as did Fritz and all the other guys that were willing to, to play a, a Nazi character. And he came in just Feet Watts all up and down his back, the blood, the whelps, everything on Watts' back. That all happened on television. Then we go to a commercial break right after that happened. And the, the local announcer comes on and said, this coming Wednesday night at the State Fairgrounds Coliseum, Waldo Von Eric versus Cowboy Bill Watts. And I'm thinking, even as a kid, I'm thinking, man, that was quick. I mean, Bill gets beat up. We go to a commercial break and find out that's the main event this week. But uh, they did a lot of that kind of stuff. That, that's the first real angle I ever remember where something from television transferred to the local Coliseum. And I, I thought I was going to see the Beatles or something. The way he got beat up, I thought, man, this is going to be great. And it was. Describe, if you can, the early tri-state wrestling television. Obviously, there is footage of Mid-South around. There's very, very little of tri-state wrestling, which was the territory of Leroy McGurk had, which would later be the Mid-South territory after a few things that happened in between. But what was the television show like when you were watching it? Well, oddly enough, when uh, when Bill moved to the like the Irish Meals Voice Club in Shreveport, it wasn't a lot different than that. The crowds were about the same. And it was a really quasi, everybody talks about how rinky-dink Memphis television looks when you go back in time. But everybody's television kind of looked like that. Burns TV looked like that. We're all spoiled to these Coliseum shows with fifteen and 20,000 people in the audience. And we think it's always been like that. I, I wrestled a little bit myself. And 
sometimes people in the church that I pastor now will ask me questions about it. And I can just tell by the look in their eyes. The first questions they ask are, did you ever wrestle Andre the Giant? Did you ever wrestle Dusty Rhodes? And I'm thinking, you folks are trained for what Vince has now. But what Vince has now is such a far cry from where it was, you know, 40 and 50 years ago. The ring was as big as the room in most cases. And uh, that's that's pretty much what it looked like. I mean, you know, the announcers weren't that good, a.k.a. Uh, Boyd Pierce or somebody like that. And most of the time, like Memphis, they were local television personalities, the weatherman, the sports guy. You know, they, they wanted to pick up a few extra bucks, and you didn't have to smarten them up very much if you're the promoter. And uh, quite frankly, that's the reason it was on at 11 o'clock on Saturday night. It wasn't good optically. It looked bad uh, as far as everything else that was on. I was just watching an old Johnny Carson rerun a few minutes ago before you called. And, you know, I think that's pretty modern as far as the optics are concerned. But compared to this high-def stuff we have now and, and the big stars that come on now, yeah, I don't think this version of the Johnny Carson show could make it now either. And I, I don't think pro wrestling, as it was being presented in the late 60s and early 70s, it couldn't. People talk about, oh, I wish the territory days would come back. You wouldn't watch it. If, if it was presented like that, nobody would watch it. And uh, that's what I remember, whether it was Vern or, you know, West Coast. We traded old tapes and stuff. And everybody kind of looked the same. And they survive in the legend of our minds now. But when it comes to the optics of professional wrestling, nobody ever did or even tried to compete at any level with what Vince has now. Growing up watching Mid-South Wrestling in Mississippi, in Jackson, did you have a lot of other friends who also watched wrestling? How big was wrestling locally? Well, it was, it was big, but again, put it in context, the smartest thing Bill Watts ever did, and in my opinion, probably the only reason Mid-South got over to the level that it did was Bill realized something that everybody else in the Southeast had forgotten or didn't even think about. Bill realized how big a part of the population African-Americans played down here. Uh, we'd come through all the Klan days and all that kind of stuff where African-Americans just weren't included. They weren't marketed to. They weren't allowed to come. Now, let me say, because I'm reporting this, in no way means I endorse this. I'm just telling you what was happening down here. Right. African-Americans, they drank out of separate water fountains. The, the whole nine yards, everything was different in those days. But Bill came to town with the Mid-South product, and he was able, almost like it was a one of those things where you, an epiphany hit him, and he realized how big a part of the population African-Americans played in the Southeast. And that's what brought the junkyard dog to Mid-South fairly early on. He knew those people would come, they would buy tickets, and they would support an African-American star. And oh, did they. Junkyard dog was as big down here as, well, I don't even know who's out there now, but some some big, if, there, if there's a really large, Beyonce, maybe if she's still relevant, I don't know. I hadn't been woken to all that stuff yet, but it may never be my age. <laughs> well, let me ask you, though, to that point there, we always hear how huge the dog was in Louisiana, specifically New Orleans. How big was he in Mississippi? 
Oh, same thing. It was no, absolutely no difference at all. But we didn't have, we didn't have the Superdome. You know, uh, Bill could build up to the Superdome and and put Dog in the Superdome, and he was huge. That angle between Dog and the Freebird, where they quote blinded him in quote. There were people who would tell their children that, like they were telling them a story from the Korean War or something. I mean, it was so big. Just almost incredulous how big it was. And, you know, when you would have, I know there's like 70,000 seats in the Superdome, and they never had 70,000 people there. But my goodness, if you can put 25,000 wrestling fans in the Superdome to see the dog get revenge, oh man, in that day, that was huge. That, that In my estimation, 25,000 in the Superdome in those days is really tantamount to 73,000 in the Superdome this last year. I was there. Those are small, small seats. Well, one of the big things I always heard brought up, and tell me what your thoughts are, is that when WrestleMania ran in New Orleans, you had people flying in from all over the world. But when Bill Watts ran the Superdome, the Superdome wasn't marketed to the rest of the territory. It was marketed to New Orleans. So, for instance, when you're in Mississippi, did you ever think, hey, I want to go to the Superdome, or did you even know about it? You knew about it, but you never thought about going to the Superdome because though there were airlines then, they weren't nearly as big and easy to access as they are now. And Bill, is, is, and I may as well give credit to a lot of people here, the Crockett's, Bill, Vern, the West Coast guys, all those guys had marketed so specifically to their cities that if you even knew the Superdome was going on, you really had to be in the know. And, and see, that's the other thing. There was no cable. You couldn't just turn on something that was happening in New Orleans in Jackson, Mississippi, and know about it. I mean, 200 miles was a lot of real estate back then. So I can remember knowing about it, but mostly in retrospect, because Bill would always come on after it was over and tell us about the great number of people that came. But, you know, in Mid-South, as well as the old AWA and any of those territory deals, you figured it out after a while. Why do I have to think about the WWE? Why do I have to think about the AWA? I've got Mid-South, and, uh, man, they've got those great matches coming to the Coliseum. I'm just going to go there. So you really didn't, people just didn't think that way. Nobody, I guarantee you this, nobody in that day in England knew anything about what the Junkyard Dog was doing in New Orleans. My point is, there was interest in wrestling, but it was only about Bill After Deep. I mean, you'd get a magazine two and three months after an event happened, and man, I sure would like to see that Bruno San Martino guy, but he's so far away, I'll never get there. So you, you just had, you had the Northeast, people thought about that. People thought about Mid-South, but they thought about championship wrestling from Florida. But it was like it was all so far away, and you, you just couldn't pick up and go like you can now. I met people in the Superdome at WrestleMania this past year. I mean, we probably met people from 20 or 30 different countries, and they, they made a whole week out of it. They, they came for the access thing, and, you know, they could have NXT on uh, Saturday night, WrestleMania on Sunday, Raw on Monday. I mean, they, it was just quite a lot of things going on. And back then, you just had to manage your own city. When did you first get cable television in Jackson? It didn't really come as cable the first time. The first big thing we had 
And man, you're really hitting some history here. This is a lifetime for me. This this is what I did in my spare time. I think the first thing we got that was cable oriented was uh, Turner's Channel 17 out of Atlanta. And of course, we got that. And we used to talk the Omnicards for a guy in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, see, I travel all over the world now in my music career. And uh, it's nothing for me to go 2,500, 3,000 miles a weekend for work. So there's no question. Atlanta, Georgia, from Jackson, Mississippi, I mean, I now look at it and say, well, good grief, that's four hours, maybe four and a half hours. I'd have gone every week the way they built those Omnicards up. But, uh, you know, again, it was a different time. That, that's where I think fans today don't understand how ignorant we were at the time. They want to call us ignorant of all the things going on around us. It was a different time. We just we we didn't need to know, and there, for a lot of that time, there was no way to know. So you know, I get a little, I guess, frustrated with with the guys now that just as it meant Australia. Let, let's have a match in Australia, and by Monday Night Raw, uh, we'll all be back for the for the show there. I mean, it's incredible. Let's go to Saudi Arabia. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Nothing like that existed back then transportation-wise or information-wise. We're talking about Mid-South Wrestling and Tri-State Wrestling, but of course, another interesting thing that happened that you had a front-row seat for was the Culkins, George and Gil Culkin, breaking off from Tri-State Wrestling and forming their own organization, International Championship Wrestling, in 1977. What do you remember about all that? Gil is still my friend on Facebook, and he's living on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi now. And, uh, boy... I don't know where or why the Culkins ever got the idea to start a wrestling promotion. They always ran the McGurk and or Watts product in Jackson, and that was about all they did. And then the next thing I know, overnight, they've got the International Championship Wrestling on television, and it was terrible. Now, with all deference and respect for the Culkins, their wrestling product was horrible. It was just terrible. They they took like the scraps from other uh, regional promotions and everybody, the, the worst thing they did was everybody was a main eventer. Everybody, there were no preliminary matches. There were no squashes. Everybody was a main eventer. And you know why that doesn't work and how it doesn't work now. But they tried it and I, I, I'll never know why. Somebody must have sold them on the idea they could make a lot of money. Well, they did give a break to a lot of young guys who would later go on to have big careers. Oh, Michael Hayes was there. Terry Gordy was there. Several of those young guys. But I think the drawing card for some of the older, more established guys that maybe had never been main eventers before, they came there and were, were main eventers. Uh, I remember Bill Ash, his claim to fame was he made the wrestling boots for <laughs> all the right. guys. I mean, if you, you need wrestling boots, go to Bill. But when he came to the International Championship Wrestling, he was a main eventer, or at least he was called a main eventer. And, uh, you know, that that had to be a drawing card to some of these guys that had never been standouts or main event guys. All of a sudden, they come to International, and at least in name only, probably, that they were called main eventers. And uh, it was a real war for a while because, you know, Watts had controlled Jackson. And you say, what's the big deal? I live in Dallas, or I live in New York City, or... Miami. He said, what's the big deal having control of Jackson, Mississippi? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Back in those days, I had a coliseum that would seat about 10,000. And uh, 
when you include the floor, the ringside seats, and the, uh, I won't call it bleacher seating, but you can set up for a concert, probably seat 10,000, but for wrestling, it probably seat 7,500 people, and it was full every week. I mean, it was a guaranteed big 7,000-seat house every week. And I don't know about you, but in my house, if I can find a place where I can sell 7,000 tickets every week, I want control of that. And maybe that's what the Culkins saw. Maybe they saw six and 7,000 people every week and said, you know, I believe we can do this all over the state of Mississippi and trying to venture into Louisiana some with very little success. But I remember when they first started, you know, it's kind of like when you tuned in to Georgia Championship Wrestling that first week when your regular guys were gone, and all of a sudden it's WWE. It shocked my system because, yeah, I didn't want Vince had just had a whole different idea about television than the Crockett's did. And in those days, it wasn't nearly as good as their idea was. I'm used to Dusty Rhodes and all those guys, and now we got guys I've never heard of, and if I have, I read about them in a magazine. And the Culkins tried to do that, and the first Saturday they came on at the regular time, they had hired the sportscaster from the Greenwood television market, and uh, Johnny Cassio was his name, and he was about the worst wrestling announcer I've ever heard. He, he knew nothing about the product. It, it was just terrible, absolutely horrible. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to give them a chance because I like all the product that's out there. I want to try to give everybody a shot. You know, I'll go see anybody. But I went to a couple of their shows, and it was just just horrible. They, they were really nice guys, but the, the product was just terrible. The difference was the Culkins retained the Coliseum in Jackson, and Watts chose to run directly against them. So he couldn't get the Coliseum because he's doing his shows on the same night. But man, Watts threw everything he had access to. Dusty came to town. All the big stars that he had access to came through, and his television was better, and his angles were better, because Watts is a genius when it comes to stuff like that. But it just, the war came when the Culkins could run the small towns that Watts couldn't afford to run, because it cost him too much to run a show, but the Culkins could do it because those people never had anything else. And But when it came to Jackson in Mississippi, that was the town where you had to win or lose. Culkin had the building and Watts didn't. And there were no, like, choice number two. I was the ring announcer for uh, Watts there in Jackson for uh, at least two or three years. And During uh, this time, during the war? Oh, yeah. Yeah, during the war and even after the war. Because I remember being the ring announcer in the Coliseum. So apparently after Watts won that battle, I was still there. I may have been there longer than I thought I was. But we they, they had wrestling. Watts had where he could get it. We had a double-A baseball team there in Jackson. And they played ball at the Smithwills Stadium, a double-A facility. And uh, we had wrestling there. You'd probably 2,500 seats outside during the winter. I mean, you think Mississippi's warm all the time. It's warm most of the time. But they actually had matches, guys in their tights, little bikini shorts with no pants and, and no shirts, pair of wrestling boots and a, a bathing suit. And they're out there banging heads in the rain when it rained, in the freezing cold when it turned cold. But they had wrestling there, and, and people came. They had it at the uh, 
I don't remember what the name of the building was. It was a, a basketball gym on the campus of Jackson State University, which I'll tell you two things about that. Number one, it was absolutely a predominantly African-American college. Still is, but in those days, it was really predominantly African-American. And also a school that offered me a full-ride scholarship back in those days when I graduated high school. For my music, I didn't get to go, but still I had that. I kind of pointed that out as the the dichotomy of everything. Predominantly African-American school, Bill Watts used it to have wrestling. Bill would probably seat 3,000 people. But I saw Dusty Rhodes in that building and and several other the the bigger names. And the whole schedule of Mid-South talent would come there. But they couldn't get the Coliseum, and there was no, there was no legitimate second choice. They, you know, I believe if you'd have cleared out a grocery store and set up a ring, I believe they'd have gone there and tried to have wrestling. You're trying to educate the people where to go. You're asking them to go to a B facility at best, and that was the toughest part of the war for Jackson for, for Watts. How was Culkin drawing in the Coliseum? It would seat probably 7,500 for wrestling. And they, on a good night, would probably have twelve fifty. <laughs> it was it was really really bad. What was their TV show like? Their TV show was terrible because uh, they they actually, if I remember right, in order to get Casio, the sports guy from the Greenwood Mississippi station, they had to have the wrestling in his studio, the the television studio. So it, you're you're transported all the way back to to Memphis again as far as the optics are concerned. But remember, Watts didn't have good optics then either. I think they were in the Irish McNeil Boys Club. And uh, so, you know, Watts might have 50 and Culkin might have 30. And uh, they had a, a much, I hate to say this about Boyd Pierce, he was a much better television announcer than Johnny Cassio was. Cassio was a nice guy, but he was a sports guy. I mean, he had seven minutes of sports during the 30-minute news show at night locally. And now he's the, wrestling announcer for an entire promotion it was just a horrible situation and it kind of got forced on us like vince got forced on us on a wtbs or whatever they call superstation or whatever it was it was just it was a shock to everybody's system i don't remember a single person who i ever talked to that said oh i can't wait to get to international championship wrestling and see my favorite stars (laughs) it was it was terrible were there any wrestlers that actually jumped from Tri-State to the Culkins International? I only remember one, and uh, that was Jim Osborne, Dr. X. And uh, it was so funny to listen to, to Watts on television. Uh, he took it so personal that he, he jumped that he'd get on TV and mention it. Dr. X, Jim Osborne, he always called him by name. That was such a non-starter because think about it now. If you have a masked wrestler on TV now, and that's why we don't have them anymore, people would say, uh, take his mask off, take his mask off. Well, you take his mask off, you have no idea who it is. So <laughs> what good was that? And you got you got Bill on television saying, Jim Osborne, Dr. X. And, I mean, who cared? Nobody cared. And, and I remember specifically one night, Dr. X is doing an interview on an international championship wrestling, and he really irate. He says, those people have called my name. I'm thinking, yeah, but what difference does it make? Jim, I don't know who you are. How did you get started as a ring announcer? You know, I don't even remember how I got started, but I was in the radio business at the time, and I, I had a radio station in Jackson, Mississippi, 
is AM station, just a little 1,000-watt AM station. Of course, that's all you We used to sign off at night, too. All the, all the radio stations did. All the TV stations signed off. We used to play the national anthem every night and go home till 6 o'clock the next morning. That doesn't happen anymore at any level. If you got a small 1,000-watt radio station, now you either stay on 24 hours a day or you're one of those low-power guys who has to sign off so the 50,000 waters can get in at night from Cincinnati and all around the, the country, Chicago. But Jack Curtis Jr. was the uh, guy that ran for Watts in uh, Jackson. And uh, I honestly, now I do remember this. I went to school with Jack's boys, his son. And I'm thinking I was in high school when they were in late elementary school or early junior high. And if I, if my mind's right, I would go up to Jack. Well, Jack actually lived at the time his boys were in school there in Jackson. Jack didn't live two blocks from me. I, I walked that way and saw his boys walking to school all the time. And then when he took over wrestling, I was a little bit older. And I, I can almost be forced to believe that what I did was I went up to him and started a conversation about his sons. And, uh, you know, you, you may not want to talk to the, to the guy at the wrestling matches who's wanting to strike up a conversation with you most of the time. Yeah. But when he's talking about your sons, you know, that I, I, if somebody comes up and wants to strike up a conversation with me now, I've got a granddaughter who's a K-1. She'll be in first grade next year. And there's a lot of people here in my town that when I go out to eat and all that stuff, I'd rather not talk about gospel music with them because I've had a, a good amount of success there. When I come home, I just want to be home. So I'll cut it off. I'm a local pastor here in town. We've got a really growing church. And I hate to say it like this, but when I, when I come home from that, I just want to come home. So I'll usually cut that conversation off. But if you come up to me and start talking about the grandbaby, I'll sit and talk with you all night. And that's kind of the way it was with Jack. I was talking about his sons and they were fairly young men. So that's probably where it got started, but I can honestly say this. It grew to such a level of friendship where I remember one Christmas, I got Jack a present, and it really embarrassed him. I didn't know what to get him because we weren't like running buddies or anything. I'd see him like once or twice a week. So I bought him a trophy, and on the trophy I had inscribed with the lyrics of the song, thank you for being a friend. And it just I would forget it. He almost cried. Like I said, we weren't we weren't big buddies, but we were good enough friends that on Wednesday night when we had wrestling, oh boy, we were the only two there. Uh, he'd be back behind the curtain, and I had access behind the curtain as the ring announcer, and the police had access back there, of course. But nobody, just seventy five hundred people here, and nobody else can go back there. That kind of breeds a, a certain kind of friendship that uh, I don't I don't know how to describe it. It just you know. It's like we're running the show here. We're not running the show, but in a sense, we felt that way. And what was the relationship between Jack and the Culkins? Because obviously he's running against them as the local promoter when they get up and running and run opposition, but he's family to them, isn't he? Well, Jack and George Culkin uh, were brother-in-laws. And this goes all the way back to like the 40s and 50s. They used to wrestle under the same name and as tag team partners. and. Uh, Jack was always kind of a hometown guy. He'd been from Jackson forever and uh, just a good old country boy. And uh, Mr. Culkin was from Vicksburg, a city on the Mississippi River. History, everybody who knows the thing about history knows the part Vicksburg played in the Civil War. And uh, it's only about 45 minutes away. So they just settled in different places. And Mr. Culkin, quite honestly, was a, 
pretty large political figure over around Vicksburg, and uh, Jack never was anything like that, but he's like the rest of us. He got old. <laughs> Jack got older, and Mr. Culkin got old. Mr. Culkin was old when I knew him, and that's back in the 70s. So he, I know he's dead now, but Gil, his son, probably a little older than me. I, I'm going to be 60 in 12 months, and I suspicion Gil is probably mid to late 60s now. But yeah, they were brother-in-laws, and you know, brother-in-laws, I've got two two daughters, both married, one to the police chief and one to another guy, and they actually get along. But it's almost like a, a forced get-along. Hey, we're members of the same family now. Right. I'll come over and help you change your flat tire if you'll come over here and help me fix my lawnmower. That kind of <laughs> right. <laughs> but man, before they were married, the sisters, they never knew each other. And now they're, they're in this forced situation where they have to be nice. But still, I, I would speculate if it came down to money, those two could compete as good as anybody. And I, I used to ask Jack about that a lot. I'd say, man, how can you be running this side of the war while they're running the other side of the war? And he would never, never talk about it. It's like I learned not to bring that up because, I, again, I'm suspicioning. I never had uh, access to see this. But uh, just because you're running one side and he's running the other, I bet you they still had to go to Thanksgiving and Christmas together. <laughs> so very, very little conversation going on there. Well, going to this period of time, one of the things that's recently come up, and it's been on one of my shows, the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review, but for years, people have been fascinated by Cat Sabulis, the Welcher. That's all we know about him. Bill yeah. Watts talks about him for several weeks in early 1982 in rather disparaging terms. That Cat Sabulis, the Welcher from Jackson, Mississippi, doesn't pay his debts. His family is thoroughly embarrassed, and Jack Curtis is embarrassed, and everyone's embarrassed because the Welcher doesn't pay his debts. It goes on and on week after week. Did you know Katsabulis? Do you know who he is? What do you know about all this? Oh, I see him in my mind right now. Again, I had the radio station there in town, so I was also selling advertising, and I have a show every afternoon from 2 to 6. Probably, I've had some great exposure through the uh, Christian music industry, and also uh, as a a, a pastor, I've, I've done a bunch of Christian television, and you think that would be more exposure, but percentage wise, I don't guess I've ever been more well known than I was when I was on the radio in Jackson, Mississippi. If I knew everybody, if I remember right, Cat uh, Sabula's had a tire store there in town, a, a pretty big tire store. And, uh, you know, you and I've talked about it some back and forth. I, I have no earthly idea specifically what Bill was talking about. The only thing I can grasp at and come up with. And we've had a couple of theories you and I've talked about, but I'm just going back to Jackson during that time and the kind of guy Katsabulis was. And I I have to say there's at least a better than average chance that Bill was just needling the guy. That that he was he was really ribbing him on television. I I never knew Katsabulis to have any enemies. He was one of those quintessential Southern guys who knows everybody, everybody knows him. He's president of the Kiwanis Club and the Civitans and part of the Masonic Lodge and all that stuff. And I, I, I just can't imagine anything other than it was some kind of a rip. It could be, or it could be the opposite, where there really is some sort of issue where he promised Watts money. Of course, a lot's going on for Bill Watts at this period of time. 82 is the year he sells his 10% stock in Georgia. It's the year he expands into Oklahoma, buying out Leroy McGurk finally. It's the year that his television show airs in San Diego. There's a lot of things going on. But back to Katsabulis, 
Some of the things I've heard from people who have tried to research this is that he was known for owning a liquor store in Jackson. Do you remember a liquor store? Yes, Catsaboodles had a liquor store, yes, and a tire store. Now, the tire store was big. Uh, being from my particular persuasions, what I do for a living, I never had a chance to go to his uh, package store, but he he did have a liquor store. I wouldn't have remembered that unless you brought it up, but he did have a liquor store. What is his actual name? I mean, we keep calling him Cat Sabulus. Is it Cat Sabulus, or is that his last name? It's either Cats, Cat Sabulus, or Cat uh, Sabulus was just his last name. So you call him Cats, Cat Sabulus? Well, we always called him Katsabulus. That's what everybody called him. And I, again, I don't know whether Katz was his first name or, or whether that was a nickname, but most everybody I, I knew referred to him as Katsabulus. George Culkin was big politically. What was Katsabulus like in Jackson? The fact that Bill Watts is talking about him on the air means Bill Watts knows who he is. How would Bill Watts know who Katsabulus is? Was he someone who was a big to-do in Jackson? Well, yes. Uh, and here's a phrase that you might have heard before is very prominent phrase in the South to talk about people like uh, Katsabulis. He was a mover and a shaker. You know, these are the guys who uh, they, they're very influential in helping the local mayor get elected. They're pretty influential in helping the uh, congressional person from their district get elected. Uh, they're just everywhere there's anything going on. And, and, and I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. They're, just, they're, they're movers and shakers. And uh, I would describe Katsabulis as a mover and a shaker. He, I say this with all respect because I may be wrong. I, it'd be hard for me to believe he could still be alive. But Bill is, so. Did you see him at the shows? Did he attend shows in Jackson? Well, yeah, but from time to time, you'd see everybody. At the shows, I, I saw uh, Jerry Clower at a show with his family one night. Never saw him at a really? show before. Or after, oh yeah, uh, of course Jerry. That's how he used to call his name. But uh, he, he loved wrestling, but he he couldn't come to the shows because he'd just be swamped with people won't talk to him. And but he did get second row seats one night, and I say this with a tongue in cheek and a wink, right behind me. <laughs> Very possible cats could have been there, and I, you know you just he's the kind of guy that everybody sees, but when it's over, nobody remembers where they saw him. He, um, movers and shakers. I mean, that, that's just the best way I know how to describe it. He's everywhere and he's nowhere at the same time. So the mystery continues until we find out more information about exactly what Bill Watts was referring to on these episodes. I want to go back to your time as a ring announcer. You must have some funny stories and have had some funny experiences while ring announcing, so tell me about them. Well, the uh, probably the, the two funniest I can remember are, uh, we had a, a couple of guys, Ernie Ladd used to be big to that area. Uh, and let me say this about Ernie Ladd too. A lot of people have asked me if Andre was really seven foot four and I'm very quick to tell them, uh, no, he was not that, that he just wasn't. He's the biggest man I've ever seen, but he was not seven foot four. And the reason I know he wasn't seven foot four is because he used to wrestle Ernie Ladd a lot. And Ernie Ladd was such a selfless performer. He would wrestle the entire match hunched over so as to make Andre look taller than he really was. Now, Andre was the biggest man I've ever seen, but he wasn't seven foot four. But Ernie, one night, somebody had given me some items to take back to Ernie Ladd backstage. And I took them to him, and it was some kind of clothing items. I think it was a giant t shirt that had his name on there. Ernie the Cat Lad had a picture of a cat or something. 
But I'll never forget, took it back to him, the, the Heels dressing room, because Watts was so kayfabe, and he wasn't the only one. All the Heels are in one dressing room, all the babyface are in another dressing room. And I took it to him, and I said, Ernie, I said, uh, somebody gave me this and, and, and wanted, wanted you to have it. Well, I'll never forget, all the Heel guys just started laughing, that, ah, yeah, yeah, that laugh, and Lad laughs, and he, he calls the people who sent it back, calls them by name, that ah, bunch out of it. And I just walked out because they're all making fun of the gift he had received and the people who had brought it. But that night in the main event, when Ernie got in the ring, would you like to guess what he was wearing? <laughs> that shirt he had criticized backstage. He was just that kind of guy. Very, very selfless. And, uh, yeah, he laughed with the other guys. He made fun of the people with the other guys. But when he had to go face down the people that brought it to him, he had it on. And uh, I say this. You know, just as kind of an aside, later in his life, it was kind of funny for me, had the opportunity to work the shows with Ernie. And then Ernie became a big part of the what the, in the Christian circles they called the Promise Keepers movement. Ernie had uh, converted to evangelical Christianity, of which I am, a, for, for lack of a better term, a prominent member of that, or the leadership in that group. Uh, that means nothing to me, but. Uh, we worked a couple of Promise Keepers events together. And the other story from, from Jackson, uh, Ernie, another Ernie, Ernie Holmes, to hear Ric Flair tell it, a legitimate tough guy in the NFL. I mean, guys were scared of it. So he's going to come into wrestling and just mop up, make a fortune. Everybody be scared of him there, too. Well, that night, Ernie Holmes comes to the ring in his Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. Well, normally what the guys would do if they had wearing anything of value, even if that was a ring jack, Jose Lothario, he used to work a lot through that, that part. And every night when I'd introduce him, he'd hand me his jacket and just kind of wink at me and say, take care of this for me. Because those things are expensive. Those, those satin ring jackets, they cost a lot of money and he couldn't afford to lose it. So here comes Ernie Holmes out to the ring. He's getting the cheers, big hero. And he takes his Pittsburgh Steelers jersey off. And instead of giving it to me, because he certainly didn't know me, he's like his first show or two in Jackson, he throws it to a fan. Well, I didn't think anything about that. I said, well, Jersey probably cost you $45 to replace that. And the next day in the Jackson, Mississippi, Clarion Ledger newspaper, Ernie Holmes had taken out an ad that said, last night I threw my jersey to a fan at wrestling. It was my jersey from the Super Bowl. If there's any way you could return it, please return it. I don't know whether he ever got it back or not. But he had actually thrown his Super Bowl jersey from the Pittsburgh Steelers to a fan. Unbelievable. And now I think I may know why he didn't last long in the wrestling business. <laughs> you, you can't do stuff like that. No, no. What a interesting maneuver. I got to go back and see if I can find that newspaper ad <laughs> anywhere. Yep. Good, good luck, because I've researched some of those old Clarion Ledger newspapers for the purposes of finding out wrestling stuff that that it would trigger my memory some almost impossible to read anything you know they're all microfilm and stuff and it's just very difficult when did you get your first vcr wow uh i'll tell you i didn't get it as early as i got my first cell phone i i used to have a cell phone in my truck it was bigger than the phone i had at the house and it's set up on a pedestal it was like me and the pedestal and the phone and that's all it could fit in the truck but uh and microwave ovens, too. I remember when my wife and I purchased our very first microwave back in 1982 or 83. 
and this thing was as big as a, a regular oven, and it cost us like $900. And the only thing that kind of makes that seem ridiculous now is that you can get them as small as your forearm and get them for 75 bucks. <laughs> but microwaves, uh, not, not microwaves, VCRs, it would have probably been right around the time that we got that microwave because you talk about new technology, that was it. I mean, I could actually have somebody send me a VCR tape from the other side of the world and watch wrestling from Japan. Uh, and Bowdrin, man, he, I used to send him Mid-South tapes, and he would send me championship wrestling from Florida tapes. And it was, it was like a, a breakthrough of, of unbelievable size because I met Gordon Soley on a VCR. I really, a lot of my first Memphis exposure was on VCR. My grandfather lived in Memphis for a long time. And when we'd go to visit him, I'd actually sneak off on Monday night to go to the Mid-South Coliseum and watch it there. Wildest atmosphere. I, I've been to a lot of shows, a lot of big shows. I've never been to a show which featured so many stars that I'd never heard of that produced the kind of response those Memphis crowds would give. It was incredible. Were there any riots in Jackson that you witnessed? No, but riots in Memphis. Uh, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Memphis was so. Uh, Jerry Lawler. Now, I realize the only How often were you going to Memphis to see the shows? I've probably only been to four or five Memphis shows. And honestly, I'm a pretty big guy. I wouldn't say I was a legit tough guy, but I'm a pretty big guy, and I can handle myself. Memphis scared me to death. I didn't ever want to go back. I was probably to get shot in Memphis. It was, it was that wild. I want to go back to Mid-South because I'm so intrigued by your involvement there. What led to you ending your run as the ring announcer? Well, this is the God's truth. Uh, there was a, a small promotion. If, if the Culkins did anything good for wrestlers in Mississippi, everybody got the idea they could start a promotion after they did. And there was a group that started running East Mississippi and some West Alabama towns and even snuck up into Southern Tennessee some. And I was in Bible college by then. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be a preacher. So, I started wrestling with that outfit, and it only took about well, uh, hold three, on, four hold nights. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me stop you right there, because you haven't talked about any of this. You started wrestling with that outfit. You actually got trained to be a wrestler? Well, about that. <laughs> <laughs> nobody got trained back then. Most of the guys you saw in the ring, I, I'm not going to say nobody got trained, but it was just one of those things you had to pick up and go. I mean, I hear a lot of the older guys now, and they talk about, uh, was uh, Flair. I, I just heard Flair talking the other day, and he, he said his first match for Vern, he wasn't even smart. He he didn't even know what was happening. So I, I found a lot of that going on. So, you know, I, I picked up, I'd done the ring announcing, picked up a lot of stuff from, from the guys in the back. And uh, so I started with this small outfit. I only had to do it like four nights a week, and it paid pretty good. And I mean, I'm a college guy. I'm trying to find a way to, you know, get myself through college. I joke now and I tell people a lot of times, I say, you used to be a wrestler? And I say, yeah, I paid my way through Bible college, being a professional wrestler. But honest to God, this this happened one night. There was a guy in this promotion who, uh, I'm trying to remember what his name uh, Wild Bill somebody. And this guy, if a report time 
for the matches was 5.30. He started drinking Old Charter whiskey at 5.30. But we were always in the main event. So about 9.20, we'd go on, and he'd been drinking Old Charter whiskey for four or five hours. And, uh, you know, Dr. X, we talked about him a minute ago, he used to load his boot, the word load in quotes there, it was Big Bill, not Wild Bill, Big Bill. Big Bill had a loaded boot, too. Except I'm telling you, when he tapped his foot on the floor, something went in there because he used to kick me in the head, and I, I had a concussion tonight. I mean, the guy just was beating me to death. But we could draw some money. I mean, when I say money, now I'm talking about in some of these small towns, maybe 1,000, 1,200 people. But still, we didn't have that big a payroll. We didn't have that many guys on the card. And uh, one night, I had told the promoter, I said, you know, I'm going to have to stop doing this because I'm soon to be out of college and people are going to start to recognize me from one world to the other. So I told him, I said, take me out of the main events. Just let me start doing your curtain jerkers and, and, and like that. That night, they finally wound down the deal with, with me and Big Bill because it was you know, as hot as you can get in a promotion like this. It, it, it was really hot. So we ended the angle, ended the whole program. And I, the next week I get introduced in the first first match. Go out and work 10 minutes to get it over with. While I'm working that match, Big Bill runs into the ring to interfere in the match. Well, I've been kicked enough by this guy to realize I'm done. I don't want any more of him. So I slid out of the ring. You know, I didn't stand my ground. I didn't, I didn't try to make myself look good. I, I slid out of the ring. And Bill grabs the microphone in front of about 1,000 people within 50 miles of where I live, and he screams, let me tell you something, preacher. <laughs> I looked at the <laughs> promoter, and I said, I'm done. I won't be back. <laughs> this is it. I'm hereby out of professional wrestling because that's my worst nightmare is that I'm going to get exposed from one side of my life to the other. What name Not did you wrestle as? Was Lord Richard Phillips III. <laughs> and it's a pretty good story how that came about, too. There was a guy, God rest his soul, his name was Sammy, and I can't remember his last name, a big, big guy. They brought me in as his brother. He was, I think he went by the name Tarzan Phillips, if I remember right. And they brought me in as his brother. Well, the bad news for me was, he was a, a heel to, to the 10th power. Well, because he was a heel and I'm his brother, I have to be a heel too. The problem was when I was a young guy, let's go back the better part of 50 years now. When I was a young guy, I had long flowing hair. and I was just smart enough that I had a lady that made all my costumes and everything. And uh, it didn't matter what I did. If I went into my tights to get brass knucks, they cheered. Uh, if I knocked somebody upside the head with a with a chair, they'd cheer. Anything I did, they'd cheer. So they come back to the back one night and they tell me, they said, you know what we have to do? I said, what? They said, we have to turn your face. I said, okay. Here's how we turn me face. We did a television taping. I don't remember. I believe it was in Meridian, Mississippi. It may have been somewhere else. We did a television taping. And uh, Sammy, Dars and Phillips, he comes out one night. And you've seen this a thousand times. I go to the corner to make a tag, and he won't tag me. This goes on the whole match. Of course, we, we get color pretty regular, so I'm bleeding. I'm sweating. I've been in this two-out-three-fall match. I won one of the falls by myself, 
and then lost the other one because they were beating me to death. It was so bad. The faces were even encouraging me, go tag, go tag. I go over and get on my knees, extend my arm. He spits on me and leaves the ring, goes back to the dressing room. Okay, so I lose the match. And <laughs> we're doing interviews after that, and Sammy comes out, Tarzan, and he starts talking about the fact that while we're brothers, we're not we're not blood brothers first degree, said his my, my mother was a dear sainted woman, blah blah blah. But his mother married my our father, his mother, the street walking this that really talking my mother down. It's a funny thing. When they carried me out of the ring that night, they didn't carry me back to the heel dressing room that I came out of. They carried me back to the babyface dressing room, but no announcement was ever made. So I come out with my suitcase, beating them all the way back to the dressing room. Clothes are flying everywhere. And from that time on, we were natural-born enemies because his mother was a saint, and my mother, according to him, was a streetwalker. And uh, that <laughs> is just hilarious. But, you know, like I say, three or four nights a week, no big problem until... Big Bill comes out and says, let me tell you something, preacher. I said, okay, that's it. I'm gone. Done, done, done. And I, I, did, I stayed away from the whole thing for a while just because, you know, when you've seen it all, from a, a fan to a ring announcer to a guy that actually flirted with it some, you know, it's just, you, you do begin to lose interest. But, man, when I came back, I came back with a, with a real desire to, to want to watch it again. And I don't even have to go to the shows anymore. I go sometimes, but uh, I, yeah, other other areas took over. Did you stay in touch with Jack Curtis during this time where you were wrestling? Uh, no. Well, of course, he was out of it because when when the war was over, uh, for for whatever crazy reason, the Culkins came back and ran Jackson for Watts. Maybe that was one of those deals we just don't know about. I don't know. Was there anyone else that you were around during your time doing ring announcing for Mid-South Wrestling that stands out to you? Well, I mean, really all, all of them, because when you're the ring announcer, it's amazing. Even though, even back then, the guys, though they weren't making the kind of money they make now, they were making pretty good money. Uh, you know, you go back to 1979, 80, man, if you were making $1,000 a week, that's a lot of money. And let's face it, most of it was cash back then, so it was pretty much tax-free. But it was amazing how they would want me to say certain things when I when I introduce them. And it, it always kind of cracked me up because I'm thinking, man, why don't you just get your money, do the job, and go home? But no, they were all interested in building their gimmick. So it's, I, I talked to most all of them regularly, especially for some reason on the heel side. I, I don't know why that was, but in those days... And I may just be as as who Roger Clemens would say misremembering here, but it seemed like I had a lot more to do with the heel guys than I did the faces. And and I, I just lucked into the job. I think uh, I, if I remember right, and again we're talking about seventy nine, eighty ish around that time. Uh, Jack slipped me a hundred dollar bill, and I was the happiest man in Jackson. There it is, Jeff Steele. A pleasure to talk to him here this week, as it was to talk to every one of our guests here on another fine episode of the Super Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening and supporting this show, as you obviously are by listening and therefore supporting this show right now. Uh, thank you so much. We've had so many new listeners over the past couple of months. I really do appreciate it. 
A lot of you have reached out. I suggest if you have questions about the origins of things and why certain things are funny and what certain inside jokes are, check out the show wiki page, tinyurl.com slash superpodwiki. Jace Nakarano, the director of show research, is constantly uploading and changing and modifying and getting that thing really, really in great shape. So check that out if you have any questions about the show and you're one of the new listeners. I've heard from many of you said, what's this? What's this? And I would just say, read this, read this. So uh, check that out right now, tinyurl.com slash superpodwiki. And on that topic of ways to stay in touch with the show, of course, on Twitter, the show's at 605pod. You can follow me at Great Brian Last, and you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network at superpodcasts. Of course, the show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast. You get to see the exclusive Travis Heckle artwork, photos of all the many, many wrestlers with listeners of the Super Podcast wearing the Super Podcast t-shirt. King Chivas, I believe, is now in the lead by far, but Reggie Harp is catching up. Roy Lusher coming from behind but trying to make a play, but uh, it's really, really cool the way people have supported the show. Check that out now, as well as get show updates and much, much more. Facebook.com slash Super Podcast. When the show goes up, that's the first place it goes. So if you ever want to know where's the show, go there. Facebook.com slash Super Podcast. Of course, we mentioned it earlier, if you're going to make any purchases at Amazon this holiday season, consider using our show link and supporting this show, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. By using that link, you don't spend any more money than you would normally spend, but we get a little bit of love and support for every purchase you make after you add an item to your cart by using that link, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. Of course, if you want to support the show by wearing super podcast gear, you can get that at tinyurl.com slash superpodstore. Of course, we have Super Podcast logo t-shirts as well as the Mothership t-shirts and baseball shirts as well as stickers, magnets, other shirts, and much, much more polo shirts. Uh, we just recently restocked those. So if you're someone who's been waiting for those to come back in, they are in right now. Tinyurl.com slash superpodstore. Of course, if you enjoy what we do and appreciate that it's free and not loaded with ads, ads that you find offensive because they treat you like you're a numbskull or whatever other reason you hate those ads, hey, you could support the show. You could say, hey, we appreciate you not having us ads. We're going to throw a few bucks at you. There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can go and make a one-time payment to paypal.me slash superpodcast. Or if you want to make an ongoing monthly donation to the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash superpodcast. It's a unique Patreon page. You get nothing for it. You're just supporting the show. We guarantee you nothing. You don't get free shows or bonus shows or behind the scenes. Fuck that shit. If you want to support the show, this is the way to do it. Once again, patreon.com slash superpodcast. Of course, if you are a listener on iTunes, maybe you already have, but many, many, many of you haven't, please leave a positive review and a five-star rating. It really does help the show out. And if you are not someone listening on iTunes, of course, you can go to 605pod.com to access every single episode of the Super Podcast, as well as our RSS feed, and you could download it directly from that site if you, for whatever reason, don't want to go to iTunes. Of course, I want to mention our friends, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records. Once again, ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com, R-A-M-S-E-U-R, Ramsore Records. Stay tuned. In 2019, 
We'll have more news about the Ruin Brothers and their new album. I think everyone will be really excited about what they're about to hear from them. Of course, there are other fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, including Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry at baldrinpod.com, Ron Fuller's Studcast at fullerpod.com, Kentucky Fried Wrestling with Scott Bowden, available at kfrpod.com, Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam and Sean Goodwin, available at mcadampod.com, and of course, the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review with myself and Mike Mills from Booking the Territory, available at MidSouthPod.com. Check out all those shows, as well as the Jim Cornette Experience and Jim Cornette's drive through each and every week. And thank you to everyone who has been supporting the Arcadia Vanguard Podcast Network. I really do appreciate it. I enjoy what I do, and that makes it even more enjoyable when other people enjoy it as well. So thank you to everyone who has reached out and told me that you enjoy one of my shows. Of course, if there's something you want to send into the show, you could do so. The address, the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership, P.O. Box 1242. I think I just upset Swami. P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For my many guests this week on the show, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Son. When given the choice between a Maryland Cup, Corp Cup, and the brand, son, we're talking about a. Oh, I'm supposed to stop there. I apologize. <laughs> you see, this is why we need to rehearse these things. But uh, I will stop there. Yes, I'm talking about world class athletes performing mind bending maneuvers. <laughs> I'm sorry, mind bending maneuvers. Yeah, but but it's all fake, right?